Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, two months ago it would have cost you more than $100 to get into the Golden One Center to watch the Sacramento Kings play. But amid a global pandemic, now all you need is a confirmed case of COVID-19. With no players and fans, arenas are some states' best hope to deal with a surge of patients in the coming weeks. In a couple minutes, we'll talk to sports reporter Trenton Kuznarek about that and Major League Baseball in Arizona in May. In just weeks, the global pandemic has forced states to ban gatherings, close restaurants, and even fine people for leaving their homes. To better track the coronavirus, governments are embracing contact tracing to keep a close watch on who has the virus and where they go. Before COVID-19, these restrictions would have been unfathomable. But in a pandemic, experts say they're necessary. We'll talk to Carol Rose of the ACLU of Massachusetts about how to balance civil liberties with good public health policy. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? Good. So if you become a daily consumer of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings, you know they're never just about coronavirus. One day, Donald Trump will reenact the brave doctors and nurses who are rushing into a, quote, war zone while throwing on their protective gear. The next day, he'll soliloquize about, if that's a word, about construction work and lost art of paving roads. Another day, he'll remind us that pandemic will never be as bad. Did you hear this one yesterday? As the millions of people who were killed in the flu of 1917 which we're guessing is a reference to the influenza of 1918. He's close. Then, of course, there are the president's daily attacks on reporters, which are appalling, which make Trump look like a triumph, the insult dog knockoff. The briefings are, they're bizarre, they're meandering, they're often misleading, they're epic, often running the length of a feature film, and they're impossible to take your eyes off, I think, which the president aptly pointed out a couple of days ago, during one of these briefings. Even they said that the ratings are like Monday night football ratings and that these are like bachelor finale. That's their end. When the big deal happened, I have no idea what happened because I'm too busy working on this. Someday you will tell me what happened. Someday we will. We're taking your calls asking, are you as hooked on these as Marjorie and I are? 877-301-8970. You watch them. Do you feel guilty about being, well, entertained? Do you think it's your civic duty to watch them? Do you feel complicit in these ratings that are so high? Or should everyone watch these to behold the two Americas, Trump's and everybody else's? The number is 877-301-8970. You know, I said that when we were talking to Chuck Todd uh, last Thursday, I said that I often leave them and I come back and uh, and I come back in part to see if there's some content after he was just, you know, bloviating about something. But they are really hard to turn off. Last night went practically into prime time. It was like eight o'clock or some such thing. There's a friend who shall remain unnamed, a young woman whose uh, mother is in uh, the Midwest and she misses her mother and the mother misses her. You know what they do every single day? This is her term, so don't get angry at me, uh, people out there. She says they hate watch the uh, task force together on Zoom. 
and that's their daily uh, contact. Uh, it, it is it's pretty ju- clever, actually. Well, it is. It, it, it is just they are so misleading and so uh, narcissistic and so unhelpful, except occasionally when Fauci and Burks are doing uh, their thing. And I have to say, Mike Pence, uh, again, I've said it before, other than the sycophancy, the thank you, Mr. President, and if it were not for the president's, other than the, the, the mandatory sycophancy, Pence appears competent on oh, this issue. Oh, much and, better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. When he would, and the other day, he actually got up and said something that you hear from normal leaders when he said something Normal like, leaders. Um, uh, you know, I want to tell you know, my fellow Americans, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, we're going to get through this. Those kinds, of, those kinds of words of encouragements were a great country going to get through this in a way that you, you know, I mean, look at Queen Elizabeth. What she did in 93 gets up there and made the people of her country feel good when she addressed them for only the fourth time in her in her reign. Do you um, remember hear what Piers Morgan said? The uh, I'm sure uh, he made fun of her. No. The he form, didn't? Now in Britain, obviously he's British, the former CNN 9 o'clock no, guy. No, what did he say? Said something like, he's on drudge, this said something like uh, five minutes of the Queen was more comforting than 50 hours of uh, Donald Trump or some such uh, thing. Well, it is. I mean, because, you know, whether you want to make fun of the royals and say they shouldn't, they're all ripping off the taxpayers and stuff like Which that. they are. Well, well, they may be, but, but it, it, she's devoted her life to her country. You know, everything has been about her country, the, and, and that's unusual, you know, to see that kind of devotion to people. Yeah, she's rich. I mean, does she do much? I don't know. I like her with a little pocketbook and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But she is she is very comforting. I mean, this is like – you, but you can't – I go back and forth with it. You know, part of it, I think, um, apologies to, to people who are in the president's camp, but I just do not get it. I guess I live in some kind of bubble. I'm glad I'm in the bubble I'm in if I'm living in a bubble. But, but he is – Mesmerizing, you know, you just never know what he's going to do next. So, can I uh, speak? I wouldn't say this is mesmerizing. I would say this was appalling. And we're going to bring this up with John King in the one o'clock hour from CNN. Here is a moment uh, last night where he is berating uh, ABC. We remember we mentioned that as soon as the Inspector General for Health and Human Services came out with his report saying hospitals are struggling with tests and equipment as a result of the administration's uh, coronavirus response, we we were predicting he'd be fired by the end of the day. I don't know if I don't think he was fired, but here is uh, uh, President berating ABC reporter Jonathan Carl for even asking a question about this Inspector General's report. Here it is. How long has that person been in government? Uh, did serve in the previous administration. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, I see. You didn't tell me that, John. You didn't tell me that. Did serve in the previous administration. You mean the Obama administration. Thank you for telling me that. See, there's a typical fake news deal. You asked me when she was appointed. I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter. And what you just said is a disgrace, Okay. You asked me, you said, sir, just got appointed. Take a look at what you said now. I said, when did they, when did this person, how long in government? Well, it was appointed in the Obama administration. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. You will never make it. You know what it is? He's like a petulant four-year-old. I mean, he really, in all seriousness, he is like a little boy who uh, anything that goes wrong he loses his temper, lashes out. It is just well, – it is so – and so, by the way, the fact that all the reporters don't rally around a reporter – I mean occasionally did when Yamiche Cinder's question couldn't get asked the other day. I think when they were on the lawn, somebody question. else asked it to their credit. This is 
disgusting behavior. Having said that, car wreck like, I am virtually unable to turn this uh, turn this off. In part, in defense, in my own defense, and this is a small defense. The rest, I'm guilty as charged. Is there occasionally is important news that you want to learn? Of course, you can read about it or see see it later that night. But even Trump's part of it, which is almost totally devoid of fact and often misleading, well, is really hard not to watch. I have noticed because there's been so much misinformation that he's taught, you know, and wrong factual information he's given mm-hmm. during these. That now on the Chirons, uh, they will have things like in real uh, time. Yes, in real time, the president promoting unproven drugs. Well, don't you think that's important? Yes, so I there's do. no delay. That people know that he's. I mean, he could be right. I mean, let's all hope that that this, that this drug does this help some people. Stuff, yeah. This chloroquine help does help some people, and you know, if someone's going down for the count, there's no reason, uh, I suppose, why you can't try anything to try to help them. But uh, they are correcting him in real time, which I think is because there's been a lot of debate about whether they should be shown at all, since he is telling so many untruths. And by the way, the reason he was in such a bad mood yesterday is because the inspector general says. The federal government has blown it. Of course. That's and, why Carl asked the question. And the federal government has blown it and continues to blow it. And he just, for whatever reason, doesn't want to try to fix things in a real significant way. 877-301-8970. John and Gardner, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, John. Hey. Hey, kids. Thank you very much. Uh, do you even need to ask me the question? Am I compelled to watch? No, I know. Believe me, I know you're watching from stem <laughs> to stern, beginning to end. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Hey, can I share with you a timeline regarding uh, whether the tail is wagging the dog or vice versa? Sure, go right ahead. Did you both see the the, uh, the presser uh, Saturday, by the way? I know they all blend together, but... I saw I weekend ones. I don't know. What, what what's the point? What time was it at? Trying to um, figure out where was I was. Four or 4.30, but it well, was whatever. the one where he kept... He kept saying, we got to open the country. we got to open yeah. up again. Bah, bah, bah. When he went off script, his main message was, we got to open the country again. And... That was Saturday. Friday night, I felt a little self-masochistic, Marjorie. Yep. So I switched over to Tucker Carlson about, I don't know, eight or ten minutes past the hour. It wasn't, I was watching Anderson, and I flipped over. He started with all sorts of qualifiers, and he's a fine gentleman. and a good. He basically started ripping down Fauci and his credibility. <laughs> he did it very cleverly, very subtly. And, Jim, by the way, he he was describing him, then he giving him a build up about what his his uh, credentials are. And you know what he said? He is called Anthony Fauci. Now I think me or you would have said his name is Anthony Fauci, but it was just a little subtle thing. So anyway, that's that. Very very careful to put in a lot of praise and so forth, but basically saying that he's been wrong before. We got to bring other people in. Blah blah blah. So well, you know who he's bringing in, by the way. Uh, as we read, uh, that great medical expert, Laura Ingram, uh, came oh, to the White House with two part. doctors yesterday, Friday, Friday to add some to add some oh, meat yeah. to the That's bones of this chloroquine argument that the president makes virtually every single day. Quickly, John, part. if you will. Yes. Laura Ingram at 10, Marjorie. I was still feeling a little tough on myself, so I decided to beat myself up. Yeah. Guess who she started taking down in the same way with a lot of compliments and a lot of Fauci. qualifiers. Pardon? Fauci? No. No. Who? Deborah Burks. Dr. Burke. Oh my mm. goodness! It was the same thing, and they were, and she was, believe me, pushing the chloro, uh, whatever the chloroquine, yeah, is, um, big time in that. But the next day, he comes out talking about how we got to, you know, open the. 
believe me, watch Fox and you see the, you see where they're going with things. One's ahead of the other sometimes, but they all wind up in the same place. It's but, you know, but, uh, John, thanks for the call. I want to say uh, we've often said one of the outliers at Fox who deserves praise quite often, Chris Wallace, yet again, has the Surgeon General on who respectfully is another – how do I put this, does not have uh, uh, as much of a backbone as he'd like. He's talking about how everybody in the country is, you know, he's, this is one of the interviews where he said it's 9-11 week, it's like Pearl Harbor week, that sort of thing, in all the states. And he said, Wallace follows up by saying, well, then should the president not order a nationwide lockdown if it's in all the states? And, of course, the guy is dancing. The lack of courage. And by the way, I'm not naive enough to think if I worked for a president, I'd be standing up and saying and criticizing what he or someday she had to say. But what this is about our health. This is not a policy position on an issue where you can dance. And uh, I would have to say the worst of the three medical people who are regularly up on the stage with them, uh, Adams, is just is useless. Uh, I mean, just. (laughs) Totally. Uh, he's the Surgeon General. Let's go to Jim in Auburn. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Jim. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for still being on the radio. Thank you. Our pleasure. So we're far, glad so we're good, here, too. Jim. we got our fingers crossed. Good for us, too. Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we at our house uh, uh, pulled the plug last week. Um, we'll watch Charlie Baker. We'll watch uh, the breakdown of what uh, Fauci and Burke say. But I, I would like very much for the press to just stop asking Trump questions. Just wait. You get off the stage. We'll ask questions of people that have actual credible answers and move on. Well, you know, can I say, Jim, I don't need to watch this. I don't need the entertainment. Jim, when you five seconds ago, when you said that, the second you said it, I'm beginning to nod saying, wouldn't that be great if they didn't ask questions of him, just of the medical experts? But then I said to myself, the guy is in charge. He is the president of the United States. He directs the policy. So as emotionally satisfying as it might be to say, uh, Mr. President, our questions are for Fauci, Burks, and the others, you do need to know where the guy's head is, don't you? Well, I I don't think we're spared where his head is. He's going to come out. He's going to do his little spiel. Asking him to elucidate on his little spiel is an exercise in futility, and I think it would say more if the press was no longer interested in the words of a known liar, if they have the Chiron you know, trying to straighten things out real time, you know, that's no longer interested. You have a right to say your piece. We got it. The president. We're moving on to the experts. Thank you. You know, that's an interesting point. You know, you could uh, possibly say, and you could, uh, Mr. President, I prefer to hear my answer from someone with some medical knowledge. But the med- the problem, and Jim, thank you for your thoughtful call. Uh, uh, Burks and Fauci don't decide to send a hospital ship uh, uh, to the Hudson River no, in New York City. It's Tom they don't to talk decide. About that. What's that? It's fine to talk about that. That's something that, that 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 they've done, and he can talk about the hospital ship. But I guess you could. There's a way. I mean, I I must admit, I'm a big defender of the media because I've been a reporter my whole life. But I think there's a way for reporters to get together and do a better job in these press conferences. And we should talk to John King about this uh, later on when he. Uh, berate somebody asking about the inspector general, which which basically showed he had no pants. Um, they, Clothes, they got, we call them. Well, whatever. He, he was, or at least pants. Let's say. Let's start with pants. <laughs> the and emperor then work has out. no clothes. Okay. Let's put it that way. The emperor, the president had no pants. The president had no clothes. Whatever. <laughs> that showed he was just full of baloney. If they kept 
at that because that was a big deal and they should have just kept at that instead of moving on to other things. You know, one of the things... But I, one of the problems is, too, he picks whom to speak with. No, but he, no, in fairness, he does. But he almost ever he hates CNN and he almost always calls on the CNN reporter. He hates, he really hates uh, women, particularly women of color. He calls on Yamiche Alcindor most times, even though they cut her mic off. Ultimately, he gets that. No, I mean, even though they ultimately, cut her mic they off. get that. You know, one thing I, I have to, I missed about 10 minutes of last night because yep. I actually made a new bean and cheese dish from the New York <laughs> Times that is one of. Oh my God! We'll talk about that someday when Corby's for black on beans next. And cheese. Well, you know, did you? I, I don't know if he's addressed this yet. There are reports in New York Times. One of the lead stories today is about the disproportionate. It was on the NPR News too. Disproportionate uh, effect of coronavirus on people of color in this country. And right. the, two of the starkest examples are Chicago and Louisiana. Not every state does a racial breakdown, by the way. But listen to this: in Louisiana, seventy percent of the deaths from the coronavirus are African-Americans. Black people, guess what percentage of the population is black? It's not anywhere close to that. 32%, less than half that number, and they have uh, uh, more than twice their share of deaths. Alexandria or... Ocasio-Cortez. Yes, AOC, I'll just call her AOC, has been saying that repeatedly, that because of the health care disparities and the housing disparities and the redlining and just plain old racism... um, you know, African-Americans among the poorest people in the country. Rotten access to health care in yeah. normal times. Well, I'm interested. The reason I asked that, I don't know if he was, this was addressed with him yesterday. I'm hoping it's addressed with him today. David in Rhode Island, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, David. Good morning. Uh, listen, I want to thank you for the, uh, the strong leadership you provide this country in um, dealing with uh, having to stay at home. I'm glad that you guys can be at home with me while I'm in lockdown. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks. Very nice of you to say. <laughs> um, I'm, um, my point uh, uh, is uh, the, the president insults the press, but he wants to have, he wants to loosen up the libel laws so that he can go after people who uh, write about him. But the media have legal departments. Why don't they? Why don't they go after him for libel for calling uh, them lousy and uh, liars, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, that's my question. They have uh, the, the the media have yeah. legal staff. Well, David, one, thank you for the question. Thanks, David. One, they're public figures, just like the president is, and the standard of proving libel in those settings is immeasurably high. But two, I, I think they want to just do their jobs. Maybe that's a strategy. I don't think it's a winning strategy necessarily. But I think I think what you said before, and I said, I guess, they should be grouping together more. When one is attacked, they should essentially circle the wagons around him or her and embarrass him for his childish and condescending treatment <laughs> of people trying to do their jobs. He wants to know why they don't ask him nicer questions. They're, not, they're supposed to ask him nice questions. He seems to think that's their role. You know my favorite moment, role. speaking of a reporter, and it was done totally respectfully, two or three days ago, it may have been over the weekend, it may have been Friday, uh, uh, Donald Trump was doing what he does almost every day, talking about how gracious the governors are in a particular conversation, mm-hmm. not just the conference calls like yesterday, but where he has individual conversations with Cuomo or Gavin Newsom or whoever he's having conversations with. And a reporter, he was talking about how gracious some were and how others were not. And a reporter interrupted, again, politely, didn't scream the question, and says, why does it matter? 
if they're gracious? And it was such a beautiful question piercing the lead with why? ego perspective of the president. Why? why? And I sound like I'm sure people say this listening to us when they want us to ask a question that we don't. But I haven't heard many people say when he starts talking about how they've built up the programs, they've built up the testing. Mm. He got rid of the pandemic department. Well, oh, it's been asked. That it has, has been, been asked, asked a lot. Oh, a lot so of times. So they've just stopped asking it now. No, well, they asked him. It. Also, he blames it on Obama, and he shorted up, and he just he just makes up stuff, and uh, uh, and also, and they do the other thing that's very effective, and maybe it's Stephanie Grisham, and we're going to miss her because she was one hell of a press secretary who never held one press briefing in her eight months. She looks like she's now going pictures. back to the uh, to uh, uh, Melania Trump's uh, office. Uh, uh, because they cut off the mics. They often cut off the mics if you ask a follow-up question. It's just, it is unbelievable. Okay, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about uh, uh, the White House coronavirus briefing, asking you should be watching, if you're watching them, or if they should just, if they're just a Trojan horse for Trump's campaign speeches. We're going to keep talking about this in 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the daily White House coronavirus task force briefings, asking if you tune in every night or are you tuning them out? We are of the tune-in variety, and I'd like to hide behind it's part of our job, but I'm guessing even if I didn't do this for a living, I would be addicted to them too. 877-301-8970. During the break, I was reading the email, and I would say we have a consensus. What's that? <laughs> this, well, people are not happy with them. Uh, this one is from Mark. He says, I can't watch that man. He's created a terrible dilemma. We're supposed to listen to the words of the president, yet this man deserves no respect. I've never felt so disgusted about a president. Impeachment would be too kind. So a lot of people are not fans um, of the president at this particular juncture. You know, there was another interesting moment yesterday, which I'm actually glad I caught. I was curious to know what you thought about this. This is an exchange from, as again, yesterday night's, uh, last night's press briefing, between the president and Dr. Deborah Burks after she's explaining that uh, uh, she understands the difficulties of following these these guidelines. My grandchild of 10 months got a fever of 105 this weekend. I'm the doctor, and I couldn't get there. I mean, so I'm trying to explain to my daughter how to listen to her lungs, how to listen to her lungs so and the baby's lungs. There. You did not get there? I did not go there. Good, I'm very happy. <laughs> because of you two. <laughs> I mean, when you, you can't. You can't take that kind of risk with the leaders of the country. Grandson's okay. So, daughter, but she's um, coming out. Yes. You know, uh, the, by the way, when she said because of you two, she motioned to the president and the vice president, saying she had a, a, a protecting. I have to say, without <laughs> casting judgment, if I were Deborah Burks, I'm not sure. I don't care who the president is that I'd make that kind of choice. But it just sort of shows her deep devotion. To her country, no, even I think given the choice between the grandkid and and, and President Trump, <laughs> I knew you were going to say this. She's I was made her choice, be... and it appears not to be the grandkid. Now, in in fairness to her, it could be because her daughter may not have wanted her to come, and was That's might true. have been worried yeah. about um, any passing something on to the to the grandkid. Uh, but she said it rather awkwardly. And by the way, she said later the te- kid's temperature, grandkid's temperature is down, was in the ninety nine range. So. Apparently, uh, 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 she is fine. Or finer. Susan in Boston, I'm sorry. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. First time caller. I listen to you all the time. I go down to the library when I can. Oh, thank you. 
thank heavens you guys are around. It's nice. just fantastic. I I just can't do it anymore. I started watching faithfully and gave him the benefit of the doubt, and then I just thought I was watching a, a Walt Disney movie. I just I, I couldn't handle it anymore. My concern is the election. I am very concerned that people are still with this tunnel vision that he's doing a great job. I don't know what his ratings are right now, but I'm very concerned about his reelection, and I don't know who is speaking of it. It's sort of all on the back burner. We haven't heard much from the candidates, and I just was wondering what you guys are thinking. Well, I'll tell you what I think is quite clear is because he can't do a campaign rally where he gets huge crowds, 20,000 people. He gets to do a campaign rally seven nights a week now, Susan, in front of millions and millions of people now. Not everybody likes what he has to say, but a decent – I haven't looked at his numbers since last week. I'm looking at him right, right, right now. Um, his approval ratings are among the highest he's ever had. That the real, the real I, I, just, I just wanted to say what they are. Uh, the real clear politics average is a 47 approve, 49 disapprove. So obviously they're close. They're virtually tie. And, and, yeah, and his handling – Susan, the most recent thing I've seen about handling of the coronavirus crisis – he, a slim majority of people, this is last week, were, uh, were approving. So in any case, uh, I don't know what the impact is going to be. And Joe Biden is sort of faded from the scene. I think it's very hard to find a place for yourself in a situation right, like that, even though they did speak yesterday. Uh, we're going to talk to John King about that. Susan, thank you for your first call. And we hope to see you in the library someday soon. Well, 877-301-8970. The president has an immensely powerful uh, media machine behind him. And he also has a lot of these wacky... Uh, Facebook feeds that people get from these wacky sites talking about all this nutty stuff, and people apparently fall for it. Well, you know, it's, but, wait, but it's, it's not just Fox. Can I tell you, it's not it's just not, Fox. It's not just Fox News. It's Fox News. No, no, no. It's Rush Limbaugh. It's not just no. Even if you don't, if you watch these press briefings, yep. and you you are not one who has a predisposition to not believe what the president of the United right. States says, uh, if I may use a double negative. When he stands up every night and says they wanted a thousand ventilators, I gave him two thousand. Uh, and when I gave him two, he actually said ten thousand. And then when I gave him ten thousand, that wasn't enough, even though I gave. Him, when he says that, if it turns out you don't have the energy, the well, time, or the desire however, to do fact checking or you, watch or read the Washington Post, you it's pretty impressive. Are reading a newspaper that's fact based here on planet Earth, mm-hmm. they will explain those things to you. If you are watching CNN or MSNBC after the press conference, and sometimes during the press conference now with Chirons, they will explain underneath that he. You know what a great night is but, between but, the, excuse me the three finish, cable though. i just want to finish if you are watching fox or listening to rush limbaugh or believing these weirdo facebook feeds things you get um you believe that he's right about that on a huge and that's night the problem on a huge night how many people combined are watching the three cable stations huge night well i think fox gets about three million a night rush limbaugh has like 11 rush million limbaugh. people you don't mean rush limbaugh i'm talking about uh, i'm talking about fox news i'm talking about cable shows at night I think it's about 3 million at Fox. So it's like 10 million between the three cable stations. That means that 315 to 320 million are not turning to the cable shows to have fact checking either on the right or the left yes, or but the you middle. Were forgetting. Don't you remember the election, the tremendous power of Facebook? You're not on Facebook. Yeah. People, I mean, my entire high school is on Facebook. Everybody like over 50 is on Facebook. And a lot of kids aren't anymore. They've moved on to other things since their parents and grandparents. Facebook is enormously powerful in terms of people's um, uh, ideas about things. And as we know, 
who knows how many votes they turned in the last election. So I beg to disagree with you, P- uh, Peter. Jim, I think that's a lot of um, of the problem is the media that people listen to or the stuff they believe in their Facebook page. However, there are other people who are not fans of the president, like Kathy, who says she needs to watch him every day. But here's the reason. She wants to be watching when he spontaneously combusts. <laughs> Betsy in Northborough, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks so much for calling in. Hi, Betsy. Hi, how are you? This is my first time calling. Well, well. thank you, too. Um, it's a pleasure talking with you guys. So I was in uh, Afghanistan, civilian, working for the Army. Mm-hmm. I got home in November. Trump obviously came on Christmas. I had the forethought, and I said, there's no way I'm going, and he was there. We would often comment how it's easier being there than being here. I came home. I started listening. Probably two weeks ago, I said, "This is I just can't do it anymore. And now I go outside, and I garden, and I clean up my yard because I was gone for nine months, which I find cathartic. Good for you. So you literally, <laughs> yeah. the moment he comes on, you decide it's time to do a little planting? Is that what it is? Yeah, I go. I have to get out of the house and go outside. It, it, Marjorie, I think we're kind of similar. It, I just hear the voice, and it's like, oh, dear. And I, I was able to retire. I worked for the Department of Defense for 30 years. Good for you. You know, I was... Yeah, I was so blessed. I was so blessed to go over there, but it's hard. And it's amazing to hear, you know, civilian, military, you know, huge racial diversity and what people think over there. You know, NATO, every country. So, What do they think experience. over there, Betsy? Um, not so much. Yeah. It's pretty, you know, and I, I live in Northborough. You know, it's a, not a hugely racially diverse town, obviously. And it was fabulous to be with such a diverse group of people, higher African-American population than white, you know, yep. very racially diverse. So, you know, I have my feelings anyway, but it was very eye-opening having lots of nice conversations while I was there. Well, you know what I – one of my big fears about this whole thing? Because it is impacting cities so much, because the virus that is, because it is impacting um, communities of color, a lot of African-Americans, a lot of Latinos, because the idea that it was going to be all these rich people that are traveling around the world is not exactly – because a lot of the very rich people have managed to escape some of the biggest hotspots. That's how it's going to be seen. It's going to be seen for people who are – not keen on African-Americans and people of color to begin with, that this was like, you know, coming in and getting rid of all the Democrats and all the uh, blacks and all the... I was going to say that. Are you kidding? These white supremacists, these people that don't like... I mean, it's not going to hit Montana the way it's hitting Illinois. And where it is hitting Illinois, it's hitting Chicago. Mm -hmm. It's hitting the big cities. So that's where the Democrats live. That's where um, uh, non-cowboys live, I guess. Betsy, final thought there? You know, I just I thank God for you too because you oh give us God. a lot of sense through this whole thing. Betsy, yeah, I wouldn't go that much. far, but you're very kind to say it, and thanks for your first call. We really appreciate it. I read this story over the weekend about the distance. I was telling you this before the show What's about that? people living like ten miles to the next house. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'd last a long of, time. How does some of these huge swaths of America that are so far from us? And um, you know, we'll see. But I I, I think that will be. By the president's fans and the white supremacists who seem to be almost becoming mainstream now, that's how this will be portrayed. Well, I, mean, I don't understand the point, though. If it, if it turns out it wasn't killing because a disproportionate it, percentage it, of people of color, then the white supremacists would say, we wish it were it killing more. it helps him politically with his base. By and killing those... more blacks and Latinos? Why? 
Jim, haven't you noticed that white supremacy is on the rise here? That racism no, but how does, is on I, the rise? I, I, I knew that. Uh, thank you. How, do, how does that help him? How does it accrue to because his benefit? Because for the base of Trump that like him despite what he's done and for those people who are – I mean I think we've learned that our country is more racist than we thought it was. No. Th- those people, it will be – this will be to Trump's benefit. The white guy out in Montana, the cowboy was fine. You know, those people that just came over from wherever they came from, Mexico or someplace else or, you know, those black kids. They, they're the ones that well, died. See what he has to say when he's asked the question about the New York Times report about the disproportionate impact on blacks and Latinos today. We shall see. I guess what I'm saying is if this were wiping out Idaho, Montana, and South Dakota and North Dakota the way it's wiping out the city of New York, this would be viewed differently. Maybe so. Okay, coming up. A year in the life of a gymnast is like five years for the rest of us. Trini Kuznari joins us to talk about how postponing the Olympics could end their career. She joins us with that more in 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie uh, Egan. Move over Peloton husband, the wildly reviled spouse who suggested in those Peloton ads that his wife should exercise more, <laughs> needs to make way for Tim O'Connell, a.k.a. the smart bike husband. By tripping on the bike's power cord, he managed to sabotage his wife's virtual triathlon, <laughs> eliminating her from the race. In any case, we'll talk about that. Join us online to uh, talk about the latest round of sporting events canceled have been the coronavirus crisis and one that may be coming back is Trenny Kuznarek. Trenny's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Hello, Trenny Kuznarek. Uh, Good morning, guys. Hi. Nice to talk to you. We were going to start with baseball in Arizona, but since Jim introduced his story about the triathlete, undone by her husband's trip. Just elaborate. I mean, wasn't she like in second place or something when he screwed the whole thing up for her? <laughs> yeah, so there is a, an Australian triathlete. She's an Ironman triathlete. Yeah. For those of you who don't know what an Ironman is, it is a 2.1-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride followed by a full marathon. And she's one of the best at that in the world. And so, as we all are, we're trying to make do and be competitive and active in our own ways now that we're all um, quarantined at home. So she enters this virtual triathlon bike ride um, via her, like, smart bike. And she's going and she's pedaling and she's in second place and she's going. And she's literally in the last stretch. You know, I think she had, like, something like 20 or 30 miles to go, which I know seems like a lot, but for a cyclist like that, isn't that much. She comes in and all of a sudden she notices that nothing's updating anymore and she's not getting anything. She looks and she realizes that her husband, a fellow triathlete, <laughs> has tripped over the cord that keeps the smart bike plugged in and she is out of the race. Oh, One of the reasons why I've not yeah, done a triathlon, by the way. It's kind of a funny, like... Yeah. He didn't hold back, though. I mean, she yes, didn't hold Jim, back. Just, Jim, why have you not... Hold on. I want to hear why Jim has not done a triathlon. Well, because I was worried about the cord being pulled, I decided I wasn't going to take that chance and put myself in that position, yeah. obviously. I think we, ch- we should check in later in the week to see if they're still married here after <laughs> this debacle. Hey, Trini, can we get... He has, he has a virtual triathlon later this week, and she said, you know what? I'm not going to trip on your cord out of spite. You know, Very tr- nice. We were talking a minute ago, Trini Kuznerik, about uh, Donald Trump's daily White House press briefings. That Well, it's not his. The coronavirus task force briefings that he is now running... And two or three days ago, he talked about how he had spoken on a conference call to, I think, 13 commissioners of the whole variety 
of, uh, of major sports leagues from Major League Baseball to the NHL to the NBA, etc. And lo and behold, I have no idea if there's any connection. We wake up to read a story this morning that I was pretty incredulous about, that there is some talk about having baseball in Ar- Major League Baseball in Arizona only in the relatively near future with no fans. Is this real or is this just pipe dream stuff? No, I think it is real, but it, Major League Baseball is backing off. I think what really set people off was, was the suggestion that it could begin as early as May. Yeah. Let's be honest, that's not happening. That's not happening. I, I, that's just it's an unrealistic expectation. Um, you know, I, I imagine that most of us, I, I have to assume that this nationwide quarantine is, or near nationwide quarantine, because God forbid we actually do that, uh, not just stick it to the governors, um, but I digress. Um it's probably going to be extended into May. Um, I will say this, Jim, if they can do it without taking away resources from the general public, then I say go for it. Because when you do put baseball players back on the field, then you, there is a trickle down effect because you're not going to have fans in the stands. And my personal opinion, Jim is and Marjorie, we are not going to see fans in large quantities inside of arenas. Um, until there is a vaccine or we really feel that we have a testing protocol yeah. under control, and we shouldn't. But that doesn't mean that players can't return and, and play in a highly, you know, controlled environment. And I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm writing my note this morning to, to, to our group for our show tonight, and, and I keep looking to South Korea. And I know that we have, not we, I know that the administration has bungled this six ways to Sunday. And if you argue against that, then I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're, you're wrong and, and you're being naive. Um, but when you look at South Korea, I have a friend that I made while, while working the Olympics in South Korea, and I follow her on social media and we chat sort of frequently during this. They are ostensibly back to normal. She is posting pictures of getting her lashes done and going to lunch and dinner with friends and walking in parks and picnics. Because they have a, even though they don't have a vaccine, they have a testing protocol in place where they have rapid testing where people can find out almost daily whether or not they've been um, exposed to COVID-19. They can be isolated if they are. They can quickly isolate entire communities if need be to prevent the spread. Before you go into, say, a mall or a grocery store, you have your temperature taken. If your temperature is high, you're not taken in, you're immediately tested. They have gone to extreme lengths. But what it's allowed is their economy to not completely collapse. And so they have slowly got things back to normal. If we get to that point and if we are innovative and we're open-minded enough to change the way we live our lives, we can get some normality back. But if we can't get to that point, then Major League Baseball has, you know, I don't want a bunch of tests going to millionaires when I'm reading a story this morning that in New York, tests are so scarce that they're telling people without severe symptoms to stay home, but then their symptoms progress so rapidly that they are there when the paramedics get to them, they're almost dead on arrival. Like we cannot have that. So if we can get it to a place where, you know, we're all getting back to normal, then let's find a way to have sports come back. Yeah. But uh, by the way, the test, I agree with you. I think the, the, the biggest issue is until tests are available to all who want it to quote the president a month ago, right? Uh, obviously you can't have baseball players being tested above everybody else. But the one other caution, didn't they try restarting uh, Japanese professional baseball a couple of weeks ago with the exact same deal with no fans and that sort of thing. And I thought 
that as soon as they did, three of the players came down with COVID-19 and they had to cancel what they just started, no? I'm going to be honest. I, I, I did not see that story, and that wasn't in all the stories that I read this morning. It wasn't cited anywhere, but that doesn't mean that, that that's just not a story amongst the millions that have been out there. I do know that Chinese national basketball was going to start up again, and the Chinese national government said, no, we're going to push that start date back one more month. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, listen, I've been texting all morning with a friend of mine who, quite frankly, is at the tail end of his career. He's also a single father. Um, with, with two kids, and, and they are Canadian-based. He's Canadian. Um, he is vehemently against this, but he admits that some of his hesitation is in the fact that he would have to travel and be away from his children for four months. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that, that, that That's would another good point. him. He said, you know, and he, and he acknowledges that, listen, if they don't play this year, he acknowledges his career will come to a very unceremonious end. I would also say, though, guys, that he is at the tail end of his career. He's made the brunt brunt of his money. He, you know, is a little more thoughtful than your average baseball player because just this morning while watching sports um, like ESPN and, 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 you know, Zoe and, and Beetle here this morning, Jeff Passon of ESPN who broke this story said that he spoke to a player this morning who last night was like, no way. My wife would never allow this. She's not going to go to Arizona for four months and be away from her and the kids. But then when she found out that it was the difference between a paycheck and no paycheck, she said, go. So, and I know that seems probably like, you know, my first response was, well, of course you want him to go, you know, you want your luxurious lifestyle to continue. But at the same time, what I think a lot of us forget that while these players make a lot of money, some of them don't not, not relative to other people players within their sport but also they're you know my friend who i was just talking about who may never play baseball again turned 37 last week and his career is over at age 37 so we have to keep in mind that for these guys who may go and say yeah you know what i will play because it's the difference between a paycheck and no paycheck it's the difference between being having to restart a life afterwards and having enough money that you know if it takes you a while to get your feet under you after your career is over you are financially stable enough to do that and again i'm not asking for sympathy for these guys who make millions of dollars while other people right now are at home collecting unemployment checks you know that are up you know totaling what 800 to a thousand dollars a week or every two weeks or something if they're getting them at all yet for these guys if they're getting them at all yet but it, just in, in the vacuum of sports, these guys have a short amount of time, and women to a smaller extent, a short amount of time to make their living. And so they want to maximize that time if possible. And also, and I've said this before, I really truly do believe that sports is a healing, uniting activity more than anything else. I mean, the closest we've had right now to something that's bringing everybody together and getting everyone talking that is isn't not a total negative is Tiger King. So, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. A show. TV and watch a baseball game. Yeah. To watch a baseball game that's happening in Arizona. Then. But again, I think the only way that's going to happen is if we are on the pathway to a, 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 a a semblance of normalcy within our own society. So, Trenny, uh, we're talking with Trenny Kuznar from NBC Sports. The one sport I thought that you could really go ahead with earlier, because you could be far apart. You wouldn't need a crowd. Everybody always whispers in the background when 
so-and-so is taking a shot yeah. out of the sand trap in the 17th hole. It's, of course, golf. Uh, but I guess this famous Open in Great, Great Britain has been canceled. Otherwise known as the British Open. Is it, is it the British Open? Yeah. They just call yes. it the Open. They I wasn't the open sure what that meant. Yeah. They just call it the, the Open. open. Now, Excuse me. Yes. Excuse me. The uh, British <laughs> Open. They've canceled yes. that, and they've moved yes. some yes. of these yes. other ones, the PGA and, and, and Masters and the U.S. Open. But why can't you play golf? Well, I think I think that the the issue, Marjorie, is the travel as well. Oh, right? okay. So, you know, the, the I, I think the the British Open said that, and what I read yesterday is that just schedule wise and financially, they couldn't find. Also, the, the difference between the Open in 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 um, I think it was to be held in Scotland this year. Um, they get actually they have an their insurance policy european insurance policies will cover a the brunt of the lost money and the cost u.s insurance policies do not so there's much more incentive for a u.s sports team to or a u.s sporting event to ha- hold their um event whenever they can in order to recoup the oftentimes hundreds of millions sometimes close to billions of dollars lost right so that's one of the reasons but also you're talking about uh, you know people having to travel in and even though the open yeah. is supposed to take place i believe in like late june early july somewhere in there maybe late july um it's just it's really i don't know that anyone feels we're going to be at the, a point at that, then yet that that society is freely moving and that borders are completely open i think the u.s is hoping the reason that something like the masters which was supposed to start thursday um, it should have been this week, moved to November, that by November we have gotten to a place where this has plateaued, maybe even tr- you know trickled down to next to nothing towards the end of summer as we get to early fall. But by that point, we've also, again, you know, whether it's, I know that no one seems to think we'll have a vaccine by then, but maybe treatments, maybe miraculously a vaccine um, or some other form of testing or something that, again, we are back to something that resembles normal. And at the very least, it would be safe for smaller parties of people to travel, i.e. golfers, families, coaches, and whatnot. Uh, But again, I would be shocked if we see until there is a vaccine um, readily and widely available, I would be shocked to see tens of thousands of people in one place at one time. You know, I I, I was just thinking when you and Marjorie were talking about all these uh, golf things and and, uh, being postponed or canceled in the the case of the Open, meaning the British Open, uh, you mentioned your friend who was a 37-year-old baseball player may not play again, obviously getting old. What's the talk in your world about a 42-year-old football player that just switched teams uh, (laughs) if he misses a whole season uh, uh, he may never play for that other team at age 43 or 44 or whatever the yeah. hell it is, right? I mean, yeah, it's one I thing mean, for a 23-year-old yeah, to miss a year and stay in shape and whatever. It's another thing for a guy who's on the verge of being the oldest football player ever to play the position ever. missing a year, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a real, I think that's got to be a real concern for the for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, you invest this guaranteed money into Tom Brady and he may never take a snap for you. Now, again, the, the feeling and the thought is, and everything the NFL has said, is that they, they not only expect to play this year, but as of right now, they have not even announced a contingency plan. They plan on starting their season, you know, like September of 12th or 13th or whatever it is and moving forward as scheduled. Um, 
whether, again, whether or not that happens, I don't know. Um, but, you know, Jim, not only does he have to contend with being a – he'll be 43 by the time the season starts this year, 44 next year with his age. But remember, he's going into a whole new system. So That's a great point. So you're hoping yep. that, he, you know, he, he's not going to be able to work with those receivers this offseason. He's not he, – he you can do all the reading and watching film online that you want, but nothing um, replaces reps on the field. Um so that's going to put him behind the eight ball a little bit. It'll be, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, even the Patriots themselves with Jared Stidham, if that's who they decide to go with at quarterback, you know, he's not getting any time right now working with his receivers, working with it, you know, his offensive coordinator and his quarterback's coach to fully prepare him to maybe be a starter in the NFL for the first time ever. Um, yeah, this is going to have long, it, it could really, it, especially for older players or players on the verge, these, this could have long standing ramifications for people. But again, in the grand scheme of things, let's be honest, no one's going to feel, I mean, no offense, Tom Brady, but I'm not going to feel bad for you. Like you've made hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars in an illustrious career. I feel far worse for an Olympic gymnast who oh, this yes. might be their one and only shot. Yeah. You know? Tell us about them in terms of the, the, the longevity of their careers, especially the girls. I guess it's pretty, it's not long. Yeah, you know, we talked about this, Jim, you asked last week, yeah. sort of like what, what's the trickle-down effect with the Olympics being canceled and how does it affect athletes? And you smartly brought up gymnasts, um, and I, I agree that they're really the most affected. And the New York Times did a piece um, on just that this week, speaking to Simone Biles, who's the most decorated U.S. gymnast in history. Um, I guess I didn't realize that she is 23 years old, um, but she said in this article, you know, I don't know that I'm going to participate in Tokyo 2021. I'm 23, so I'll be 24 at that time. I was really prepared for this to be it for me and to move on with my life, like to put your entire life on hold. And then there were other, you know, gymnasts in there who talked about how, you know, can my body take it? Can my body take the pounding? Uh, another year of injuries. Do I want to? Do I want to forego pushing off college one more year for an Olympic dream? Now, my guess is that when push comes to shove, especially those who have, unlike Simone Biles, have not had a chance to experience an Olympics, my guess is yes, that you probably will put, you know, college off one more year or whatever it is, starting a regular life off one more year to try to fulfill those Olympic dreams that you've had probably since you were a little kid. Um, But it's really disruptive. I mean, again, I just think people don't realize that for a lot of Olympic athletes, you know, Simone Biles excluded because she's got a big sponsorship, you know, with like Nike and um, and some other um, big corporations. You know, most of these young men and women are busting their butts, living off their parents, maybe living off small stipends, working other jobs um, part time in order to supplement their income and train to be an Olympic level athlete. Uh, the Olympics being moved has, you know, consequences far beyond just having to push them back a year. Well, you know, there was this fascinating um, statistic in this New York Times story about female gymnasts saying it's been 48 years since an Olympic gold medalist in the women's all-around was older than 19 oh my God. years old. Yeah, yeah. and that they, they, young crazy? teenagers do best before they they're bo- they mature and they add weight and height to their bodies that make it more difficult for them to do all those un- unbelievable things they do in the air. So there you go. Hey, Trenny. Yeah, I mean, my... My sister wasn't an elite gymnast really quickly, just anecdotally. My sister was not an elite gymnast, but when she was in gymnastics and then she, and then she finished and she quit when she was like, like about 13 or 14 years old and she was higher level, like sort of on a, just under an elite track. 
Marjorie, her body changed so drastically the minute she stopped. So that's the other thing. When you stop this hardcore training, does your body all of a sudden say, wow, I can mature? <laughs> I the, don't know. The growth really, I'm not kidding. The growth, her growth was stunted. Um, and when she matured, she matured very, very quickly. Wow, that's, that's a great question. You're putting, and you're putting so many calories into the gymnastics, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Trina Kuznarek, thank you. Hey, thank Trina, you good so to much. Talk crazy you. Stay time well. in your business. Absolutely crazy time. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Stay talk well. Okay. See you. Boston Did you notice, great. by the way, when we first met, I was still doing the parallel bars when we first started doing radio. Did you notice how my body changed after I stopped doing the <laughs> stopped doing the parallel bars? Did you notice? I, I, <laughs> well, I noticed your body. I, I didn't notice. <laughs> it was because of the I, parallel bars. I think bars. I missed the it parallel bars. It was because bar, it was, well, bar, I didn't invite part. you to a meet. <laughs> Okay. It was because of the parallel bars. Trust me. A contributor. It's not funny. Trenick is never joins us every week. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Coming up, the ACLU's Carol Rose joins us to talk about pandemics and privacy. She's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, if you had said a month ago that a state could effectively ban people from going outside, close down parks, ban public gatherings, and monitor the movements of citizens, it would have made some gasp. To some, the strict measures to fight the pandemic are reminiscent of a surveillance state created after 9-11. This time, even the civil libertarians acknowledge the threat is not just very real, it's quite acute. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Carol Rose of the ACLU of Massachusetts about how to balance civil liberties and public health during a pandemic. So we all need to eat. But as the COVID-19 economic crisis worsens and more of us turn to food banks for a meal, places like the Greater Boston Food Bank are running out of food. Faced with this shortage plus a steep drop in donations, food banks are turning to the public for help. We'll talk to Catherine DeMaio, the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank, about how we can safely pitch in. That more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Marjorie Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there. Two updates very quickly. One, our first segment today, we're discussing the addictive nature, at least for us, of these uh, coronavirus uh, task force briefings led by the president. And a friend of ours texted a minute ago, I can only paraphrase, and says, not only can I not watch the briefings, I could not bear to listen to your discussion about watching <laughs> The briefings, but that's really bad. Okay, and Newsweek. Bad. Speaking of the briefings, last several days, you know that uh, the president has essentially given medical advice about chloroquine, uh, this anti-malarial, anti-lupus drug. And there's a report in Newsweek this morning that several hospitals in Sweden have reportedly stopped administering chloroquine to coronavirus patients, following reports that the drug was causing adverse uh, side effects. I assume that will come up today, and we'll see if he allows uh, Anthony Fauci to answer the question, which he did not the other day. But first, the urgency urgency to fight the coronavirus uh, is complicating the long-running debate about privacy versus security. If we submit to something like China's tech-based fight against the pandemic, could we be signing away our privacy protections such as they are for good? Join us online for a take on this and other headlines about civil liberties in the time of coronavirus. This is Carol Rose. Carol's the executive director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. Carol, good to talk to you. 
It's good to hear your voices. You yeah, too. I'm glad to be here. Hey, Carol, before we get to the, um, the privacy issues, I just wonder if you know about the state of the courts in Massachusetts. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, you think of like cases with child cases, probate court where there might be the Department of Children and Families involved. Are the probate courts open? People that are getting divorces, people that are, you know, get pulled right. over so over the weekend the- for drunk driving or whatever. What's going on? Right. So, I mean, the courts are open. Uh, in an emergency basis. So they're not hearing unnecessary cases is because they're complying voluntarily as they should with uh, not spreading the coronavirus to people. So, um, but at the same time, there has to be access to justice. You're absolutely right, Marjorie. And so, uh, you know, we've been, the ACLU has been watching this and monitoring this as so many other things that we do uh, to make sure that we remember that we can be both safe and free. Um, you know, public health and civil liberties and access to courts are actually aligned. Um, you know, to think about it, if, if the courts were to just say business as usual and everyone, all the court officers and the lawyers and the judges became sick, then we would really have a lack of access to justice, right? So these are the trade-offs uh, that the ACLU has been really working on um, since the virus started um, and helping us as a society uh, to figure out how do we go forward and retain our values of freedom and security at the same time. And, and, and for the most part, we've been pushing for public health approaches to a lot of what ails society uh, for the last hundred years. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's, we're well suited to help to navigate um, together with lawmakers and public health experts. How, how, do we, how do we see this through? and How do we come out on the other side and actually become a stronger and more resilient uh, community? Well, let's focus uh, on the, the issue that I mentioned at the top, uh, which I, I think we confronted most recently, at least to this level in post-9-11 is how much uh, uh, privacy are we willing to give up in the name of security? How much privacy do we have to give up? And if I remember the polls from those days, Carol, I I think I'm right, Mm -hmm. that uh, pretty overwhelmingly people were willing to say, uh, I'll give up my right to privacy. I'm willing to be uh, surveilled if it keeps me safe. I know that raises great concerns for you, but I've read stuff from leaders of the Civil Liberties Union nationally, and it seems mm-hmm. that what you guys are trying to create is some sort of balance. Is that a fair description, or why don't you describe yeah, yourself? No, no, actually, you're absolutely right. And so on one hand, we need to, again, taking the public health approach, um, if we had opportunities to have widespread testing, for example, uh, that would be an opportunity to be able to track uh, you know, it's terms like surveillance and tracking have different terms in public health than they do in civil liberties, right? Um, and at the same time, when we use the systems that we're going to need to build and are trying, I think, to build uh, to track this, we need to weigh that uh, with equity and transparency concerns. Um, so, like, for example, last week, just on April 2nd, uh, the ACLU here in Massachusetts, along with the Harvard Law School Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation, sent a letter to uh, the Baker administration's uh, in the Department of, of Public Health, and basically said we need to do um, ensure an equitable response here in Massachusetts. We know that there are racial disparities, for example, in, b- before the coronavirus in access to health care, uh, but we want to make sure that we don't have those same disparities in terms of access to testing, access to ventilators, access to health care in general, uh, and in particular. Uh, we need to be tracking that for socioeconomic and racial disparities in certain neighborhoods where people might be in more crowded living conditions or where people might have to be forced to work. They're essential workers, right? Uh, and so trying to figure out how do we balance the equities 
on one hand with the need for privacy um, on the other. And those are the tensions that were uh, really, it's, it's a dialectic. And I, I think we're going to see our way through, but this is an opportunity for greater government transparency, which is what we requested in our April 2nd letter uh, to the Department of Public Health. Um, but we, because we can't manage what we don't measure. So we have to be measuring this both as a civil liberties standpoint and also from an equity standpoint, and finally from a public health standpoint. Um, and how do we balance those equities going forward? That's where the, I think the ACLU's expertise between privacy and equity issues is going to be really important for the coming weeks and months. Well, you know, Carol Rose, we were just talking to Trini Kuznarek about uh, South Korea. Many people have talked about South Korea, the fact mm-hmm. that they had this extensive testing. They were able to get uh, get be- their economy back up really quickly, and people are now going out and getting pedicures and stuff like that. But this Bloomberg story points out that in South Korea, the government constantly updates its website tracking the movements of people infected with the virus. And then they call the mobile phones of people in the geographic vicinity of that person. And in Taiwan, there's this electronic fence, according to Bloomberg, that allows cops to make regular phone calls to people home under quarantine. If they don't answer the phone, the police come to the home within 15 minutes. You know, uh, South Korea has done very well with this, but I don't think we're ready for that kind of intervention, nor what's going on in Taiwan. We're we're not ready from it from a from a civil liberties perspective, but we're not even ready from it from a testing perspective. I mean, that kind of thing only actually works if you have widespread available testing for everybody, right? Otherwise, the danger that we have is that if you say, well, we're only going to some people are going to get the test, and those are people who are going to be quarantined. Other people aren't going to get the test. Well, this virus, what is it, 25% of people who have it are asymptomatic. So that's going to give us a false positive. That's going to give us a sense or a false negative that, that we're safe when we're in fact not. We need to go forward, at least for the foreseeable future, assuming that everyone might have the virus and treat everyone uh, has to self-quarantine, whether you've had the test or not, um, and then make sure that testing becomes more equitably available. Um, particularly, I mean, I was pleased to see that Governor Baker uh, was creating some uh, drive-through testing for first responders. But what about the people who are working the pharmacies and the grocery stores who are, you know, continuing to do that work? We need to make sure that they're also prioritized for testing uh, and access uh, to health care. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about something that's happening here that's uh, clearly far less extreme, but a variation on a the theme mm-hmm. than what Marjorie was talking about. I had the medical director of Partners in Health with me on television last night. And the mm-hmm. governor announced, I think, last week, um, all the days, of course, run together for everybody these days, uh, the first in the nation contact tracing effort where they're going to hire partners in health along with MGH mm-hmm. and the state are going to hire a thousand plus people. When a person mm-hmm. tests positive, they ask that person, who have you been within six feet of in the last X number of days? They give mm-hmm. them names. They then call each of those people, uh, contact tracing, uh, and uh, without identifying the name of the person who tested positive, obviously in some cases it's going to be obvious who he or she is based on who they're calling. And uh, then, uh, uh, I mean, then find Mm -hmm. out if they are uh, at risk of coronavirus. Now, the problem is, as you say, until there's enough testing, the most they could right. really do is say you got to quarantine yourself for 14 days because you're in contact with Jane Doe. Does that level of um, – I don't even know what the noun is, so I'll leave the noun out. Does that level of something concern you or – I find it – assuming it's doable. I'm not – a lot of people think mm-hmm. it's too late in the game. Partners in Health does not. Does that level of something concern you or no? 
Well, I mean, I, again, I think that I think we need to sort of like avoid the false trade-offs. So like China, for example, uh, had a comprehensive system for trying to track every single person, and then ultimately they were using location data, um, and they ultimately abandoned it because it wasn't working. It had too many, you know, false positives, and it was sort of too expensive and not sustainable. So I think we need to be coming together to talk about and access to testing is really relevant because it's asymptomatic. Um, and, and we need to be able to work with our public health officials to do the kind of tracking that they need to do to try to quarantine the virus and then aggregate the data. You don't then make the data available publicly or use it for other uses. So there is a lot of sort of privacy protections we can put around necessary data collection. Um, and you don't want to create a situation where people are afraid to come forward uh, and report or to seek medical care because that hurts everybody because then they, if they're afraid of the government that ICE might pick them up and detain them or they're, uh, you know, for whatever reason, distrustful of the government, um, that's where you, that really falls apart. And again, making tests available, ensuring people that their privacy will be protected, those kinds of things are ways to ensure voluntary compliance. And voluntary compliance in a public health uh, situation is not only just, it's not only good for civil liberties, it's really important for public health. You know, Karen, can we so go back I, to, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Can we go back to something no, you said a minute ago about the racial sure. bias and economic bias mm -hmm. within access to care? And we talked to, I think the first person we talked to about this was the dean of BU School of Public Health a couple of weeks ago, Sandra Galea, right. about how mm -hmm. in normal times there is a gross disparity in terms of access to decent health care. Obviously, it's accentuated here. Do you know, are we one of the states, we obviously all read the story in the New York Times talking about Louisiana, Chicago, et cetera, today, where the right. number of coronavirus deaths is uh, disproportionately amongst African-Americans as compared to their percentage of the population in those communities in Chicago and in Louisiana. Do we keep, do we do that kind of breakdown that you were requesting of DPH in Massachusetts or do we not? We well, um, the, in Boston, there's been some relief, although I'm not sure it's continuing. We're, we're trying to make it continue on race data. It's by neighborhood, you can see. Mm -hmm. And again, you have increasing amounts of uh, infection in a lot of uh, socioeconomic, traditionally black or brown neighborhoods in Boston. Um, and again, is, is that because these are people who are living in closer quarters? Is that because these are people who are still going to work because they have to? Um, and so if we want people to self-quarantine, we have to make it possible by making sure they can uh, be still either have a, a rent abatement or somehow be supported uh, if, they, if they can't go to work. Um, and then give them access to testing uh, if they're having to go to work because they're necessary employees in our economy. Um, let's make sure that, that those people get access just like our first responders and our medical care professionals and not just the doctors and nurses, but the people in the hospitals at the, at the, who are the home health aides and, and other kinds of hospital workers. But as you um, say, step so, one is transparency. We have to know what's happening before you fix it. That's right. What? Which is why that's and that's exactly right. That's why the ACLU filed, you know, we sent this letter to the Department of Public Health mm -hmm. requesting that they collect and track this data at the state level, as well as seeking for the Boston cities to do the same thing. Um, so I'm hopeful that they'll come forward and, and to bring that level of transparency and, and keeping in mind that we have to have equity in uh, transparency and equity are like the twins on this stuff. And but if we have both transparency and a focus on equity, people will trust the government. And when they trust the government, they'll comply. Um, and, and that's why I think we have this opportunity here in Massachusetts uh, to do it right. Um, and I have to give some—I have to give lots of credit to Senator Warren and Rep. Presley, Ayanna Presley. They wrote a letter very early on 
to the Federal Department of Health and Human Services asking uh, to, for them to focus on racial equity in their COVID-19 response. Um, now, how, how far that's going to get with the Trump administration, who knows? But they're on the record for asking for this. And this is, again, I think where Massachusetts can play a leadership role for our benefit, our public health benefit, and as a model for the rest of the country. Uh, we're talking with uh, Carol Rose from the Massachusetts ACLU. Carol, tell us a story about this immigrant who was released from uh, ICE uh, several days ago uh, by a federal judge. What was the, what was the deal there? Right. So we, the ACLU, has been representing a series, a number of patients, or excuse me, people in ICE detention. Uh, you know, there was one guy who had prostate cancer. You know, there was another one with diabetes. Um, and, you know, so there, there are a number of people in ongoing, our ongoing efforts to set people out of civil detention in, with ICE. We also, the ACLU called very early on for ICE to stop arresting people who, you know, that have overstayed their visa or have an outstanding order of removal or something like that. Um, you know, nobody, and that goes in general with our work, uh, both to, to get people out of all forms of government detention when possible, uh, not just ICE detention, which is at the federal level but also at the state uh, level and in the jails. And so we also filed a lawsuit, uh, an emergency lawsuit before the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts, uh, seeking for our jails and prisons, which are really uh, breeding grounds for disease anyway, but particularly in these circumstances, um, somebody who's in because they uh, violated, had a technical parole violation because they didn't even get to their drug test. They shouldn't be given a death sentence, which effectively is what this is when you lock somebody up uh, in very, very close quarters with a lack of hygiene in particular. But even if you had the hygiene, um, we need to do the social distancing. Governor Baker called upon us and issued an emergency order for us to do social distancing. That includes in the prisons and jails um, and in ICE detention. Uh, so people really need to be set free. So we, we had... Um, a series of hearings last week. It was very, um, you know, Jim, you mentioned earlier about access to the courts. It was all being done uh, virtually. So very interesting to see our courts functioning on these emergency cases to set people free. Um, and I would say we got some relief, uh, but not all of the relief that we were seeking. You know, I want to discuss the larger uh, SJC thing around setting people free. But before we leave this, I had mm. Susan Church with me yes. last night on TV oh, as one of the top immigration lawyers, needless to say, in yes. our region. She goes to yes. immigration court, which incredibly enough is still open last Monday. Right. And as she said, it I said, why is it open? And she says it's open because the deportation machine stops for nothing, including right. people's health. Uh, nationally, in a rare uh, moment of unity – the union representing the judges, the immigration judges, mm -hmm. the defense attorneys, uh, and the union representing the lawyers for immigrations, immigration and customs enforcement, all together said the courts have got to be closed. Thursday, Susan found that there was a member of her household that had tested positive for coronavirus. She right. notifies the courts. They close the court finally the next day right. after a late night tweet for Friday. And then they reopened the damn court yesterday as if nothing happened. And that so happened. while there is this incredible desire to keep people safe, except in emergency situations where you need a court proceeding, as you and Marjorie discussed, to happen, I can't disagree with Susan. What's more important to this executive office of immigration, whatever it's called, EOIR, right. is deporting right. people than keeping people safe. It is just 
It is really, right. it's and scandalous. I, and it's really important. And even, I mean, I think, you know, how we're judged as a society is how we treat the least among us. But even if there are people out there who don't think, uh, they don't care, you know, about, about people who are in detention, whether immigration or otherwise, but they do care about the guards. They do care about the lawyers and the judges. I agree with you. All of us go back to our communities. So we simply need to stop. We need to all come together around this public health crisis. Um, you know, once the moment of the, the, the time of crisis has passed, we need to go back then and say, what are the things we shouldn't go back and keep doing? Like locking people up on civil immigration violations. It's just a waste of public resources. It's bad for public health. It's bad for families. You know, it's just, it's just the wrong thing to do. So what this crisis is doing is really shining a, a magnifying lens on so many of the wrong ways, wrong-headed ways that we're approaching so many ills. We need to bring a public health approach to how we want to survive as a species, as, an, as a society, um, and stop trying to criminalize our way out of what are really often issues of public health. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think you know, Susan Church is, is what we work with her all the time, and she's a good friend, and she's a wonderful advocate. And the fact that someone like that should have to expose their own family um, simply because she represents people in court, that's not acceptable. It was months after, by the way, she's handcuffed and (laughs) held in contempt in court for doing the horrible thing of representing her client in front of a uh, judge. We're talking to Carol Rose out there, but somebody's going to do it from the Civil Liberties Union. But Carol, I wanted to ask you about the um, state Mm -hmm. Supreme Court uh, ruling on Friday about um, inmates, people in prisons. What's the uh, what's the result? What they rule? So basically, um, so on the on the upside, the, the court ruled that people who are pre, being held pre-trial, so they haven't been convicted, on bail and, and are found not to be dangerous, uh, should be set free once they they have a due process hearing. So there's a hearing, and they have to have a hearing right away. Um, the other good thing is that they ordered that the Department of Corrections and each of the sheriffs have to give a daily report on the number of COVID tests and positive results for people who are in their custody. For correctional officers, as I was saying, other people are affected, all the staff, um, and the number of people released. Um, And the court also urged that the parole board expedite the hearings of people who are eligible for parole. So that's the the stuff that we were really happy to receive. What they didn't do, uh, and where we thought the decision really fell short uh, in terms of a public health response, uh, was to let have people who are in prisons and jails who are not who've already been convicted but maybe very close to finishing their sentence so they're going to get out in days anyway um, who may be in on a technical violation um, the court basically said we don't have the jurisdiction there because they're post conviction um, at this point they may you know they're saying well, there's a constitutional violation like an eighth amendment cruel and unusual punishment kind of violation um, maybe we can go back to the court but to, and people are starting to die now. So there may be that kind of a claim. But in the meantime, it, it really falls to the other branch of government, then that's the executive branch and Governor Baker, to use some of his powers of clemency and otherwise let these people out. I mean, it's just shameful that there are people there and they say we have distancing because they're sleeping head to toe. Head to toe is not distancing of six feet. Um, and just, you know, people, the vast majority of people who are in America's prisons and jails and houses of correction are going to be coming out to their families anyway. We don't have a death penalty here in Massachusetts. We shouldn't be locking people up in a way that exposes them to the possibility that they might die simply because they're incarcerated. Carol, we're running low on time, but I want to clarify something here that I don't understand. I know the Rachel Rollins of the world, people like uh, uh, Suffolk County, uh, Middlesex DA, Marion Ryan, we're looking for broader relief here. 
Uh, the narrow relief pleased somebody on the other side of this issue generally, the DA for Cape and Islands, Michael O'Keefe. But what I don't understand, he's quoting the Globe saying, had the court ruled in the defense lawyer's favor, the SJC had ruled in their favor, uh, it would have, quote, let people guilty of restraining order violations, sex crimes against kids be willy-nilly released. People convicted of some serious crimes will automatically be released. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I assume Michael O'Keefe knows more about this than I do, that the DAs have no power to unilaterally release anybody, that if they all they can do is agree with a defense attorney in a case that Jane Doe or John Doe merits relief in this situation, that ultimately it's a judge who makes the decision. Am I wrong about that? No, you're, you're right about that. So and what is he talking about? Well, I just think that the record straight. It's simply not true that we ever said, oh, make an exception for everybody on a 209 restraining order. No, we didn't argue that. No, but, no but, but, but even, that I know you didn't. But even if he it, were right on that part of it, he's making it sound like the prison doors open unless a no. judge says a person is not a risk to public safety. He or she is not going to get released, right? Well, so what we were arguing is that the court could actually exercise its Article II authority to do that. If the court wants to defer to the executive branch to do that, then we would call upon Governor Baker to do it. The bottom line is, as a matter of public health, if we have a public health crisis, we need to stop putting people into situations where they're going to exacerbate the public health crisis. It's not only the lives of the people inside these detention facilities, it's all of us who are subject to it. We're so what are you, So maybe I was wrong. What, what, what were you asking for? Without judicial review, the SJC to authorize what? So that people, just exactly what we have pre-trial, people would have a dangerousness hearing. And, and, and that we would move that up and people who could get out or people who were very close to the end of their sentences with really often the place, uh, terminal illnesses. But in front of a judge, right? Compassionate release. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so I mean, but so ultimately, it doesn't matter what it is, even if you went too far, which you said you didn't. Ultimately, right. a judge is going to decide whether that person is a free person, correct? That's right. Which and there is, was a series of excluded offenses that were attached um, uh, both to, to, to the proposal. And, of course, uh, they had a very long list of excluded offenses, like you know, some, some on the other side saying every offense should be excluded. And we were saying no, only violent it. offenses. Clearly, we don't think that people who are a danger to society or to their families uh, should be willy-nilly released. That was never something that was argued. So, John, I'm sorry. We're talking to Carol Rose from the Masters ACLU. Carol, uh, people may recall the case of uh, Sonia Farrick, who had a drug problem and apparently was using some of the drugs that she was testing for criminal purposes in the Masters drug lab for court cases. And Annie Dukin, who um, w- w- didn't have a drug problem but was misrepresenting uh, what was going on with these defendants. What's ha- what's happening with them? This is the so-called so, drug lab so scandal. Is, yeah. The drug lab scandal. So for those of those of your listeners who are, you know, watching Netflix while distancing, if you want to see a great documentary, just landed uh, on April 1st. Uh, it's called How to Fix a Drug Scandal on Netflix, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. It's directed by Aaron Lee Carr, and the Wall Street Journal called it captivating. Um, one of the hero, heroic lawyers featured is Matt Siegel, the legal director at the ACLU of Massachusetts, along with Luke Ryan and uh, Dan Marks and a bunch of other great lawyers who came together and took on these wrongful convictions at these two drug labs, the Annie Dukin Hinton drug lab. Annie Dukin worked with that in eastern Massachusetts and Sonia Farrick uh, at the Amherst drug lab out there. Really interesting story about how the war on drugs um, 
uh, as a systemic matter, creates such injustice. Um, and, and, and Aaron Lee Carr, the director, does a great job of exploring that. It's a four-part theory, so you can really veg out on it. Uh, my, I watched it with my kids. They said uh, episodes two and four are the most exciting, so I'll just put it out there. So before um, you go, wait, 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 we only have a minute yeah. left. I want to play a little bit. Since you mentioned Matt Siegel being Perfect. featured, let's hear from Matt Siegel uh-huh. explaining why they fought for the courts to dismiss tens of thousands of cases in the drug lab scandal. Again, this is from Netflix, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. Part of our analysis of the cases that were provided to us was that in 60% of the Dukin cases, the only drug charges were for possession. And in 90% of the cases, the entire case was brought in district court. And district court is for less serious offenses. So in 90% of these cases, someone had already decided that these were not the most serious cases in the Commonwealth, and that someone was a prosecutor. Let me just say, I'm impressed with Matt's work, but he's even better with music in the background. Just tell him. Uh, wow. I, I think it really enhances ominous tone. his whole. We're going to watch. Hey, Carol, good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks, stay Carol. safe. Thanks, Carol. to talk to you all. Stay well. Stay safe. Same to you. I hope so. Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. She joins us every month. Thank you again, Carol. Uh, coming up, for many Americans, the coronavirus food shortage is already here. Catherine D'Amato of the Greater Boston Food Bank joins us to talk about that. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. Just a couple of weeks ago, before we were in the practice of social distancing or even knew what it was, there was no end to reporting on those long, winding lines at grocery stores and the images of the bare shelves that were left behind in the wake of our mad dash to hoard food and toilet paper. Today, those long lines are at food pantries across the country where service providers are dealing with spikes in demand, logistical challenges, and mounting uncertainty, obviously, about the months ahead. Catherine D'Amato joins us on the line to talk about what the food shortage situation is here. She's the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. Catherine, it's good to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much for being here, Catherine. Uh, So demand has gone up massively. Tell us what's happening. Sure. So prior to this pandemic, Uh, Massachusetts was about one in 11 um, citizens that were food insecure. And what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks is a significant increase in demand for food at the 500 organizations that we serve throughout eastern Massachusetts, which is 190 cities and towns, Boston, of course, being the largest. We're seeing, um, you know, 330,000 new unemployment claims across the state in the last two weeks, but to, for your listeners to try to make this connectivity, it's 50% more than we were serving uh, relative to just a few weeks ago. So when we think about volume going out the door to pantries, kitchens, shelters, daycare centers, congregate feeding sites for elders, et cetera, last March 2019, we distributed about 5.3, 5.4 million pounds of product. Uh, this March, it was 8.1 million pounds of product. So you can about a 40 plus percent increase uh, of just the product. So we have over 600,000 people in Massachusetts that are that food insecure. And we expect with unemployment claims and 
business closures, at families just not being able to make it, we will continue to see high demand at food pantries. You know, Catherine, did, did uh, Brenda Casillas not tell us, and maybe I'm wrong, the superintendent of the Boston schools, that you were working in tandem with them around feeding school kids who obviously are not in class, but as we've learned in the last year, depend hugely on the nutrition they get from school breakfast and lunches to be able to maintain. Yeah. Are you involved in, in that? Think of them as parallel paths. So school meals are being provided through a vendor for a breakfast lunch, and any one, any child, 0 to 18, is eligible to get those. And those are at a variety of sites across Massachusetts. If you know a little bit about summer feeding, which occurs in the summer, basically all of those sites are now activated to distribute those. Uh, they're like uh, they're almost like lunch bags, right, mm-hmm. with a variety of ready-to-eat food and can be picked up in communities across Massachusetts. So that's one path. Parallel to that is the food pantry system where families and individuals can seek assistance in their community. So they are complementary, slightly mm-hmm. different, uh, but uh, we are working closely with Project Bread, who's the lead on the school food service programs, and then Greater Boston Food Bank is the lead on the distribution of food to pantries throughout the 190 cities and towns in Eastern Mass. How are you meeting the increased demand that you described? And I assume the percentages are going to go higher and higher. What would you say? Yes, they're going to go higher and higher. And so when you think about how does a food bank, you know, handle this situation when there's acute need for food. So we are we have ramped up uh, a number of factors that occur. So we purchase a great deal of food. That's good news. The, the challenging news is that those purchases are also what every retailer you know, wants uh, in the country, things like shelf-stable product, peanut butter, yeah. canned tuna, rice. Um, so there's a, there's a great deal of competition for that product. You know, I'm very pleased to say that we have a solid, consistent, and nutritious inventory of fresh and frozen product in our warehouse, and many agency partners have the capability to handle that product and continue to give it out. But if you're a a program that was used to having families and individuals walk into your food pantry, ask for assistance, have a lot of exchange, right, uh, that you can't do that right now with distancing. So what we are seeing and helping programs do is to transition to grab-and-go, pre-made boxes, pre-packed, you know, hand them, put them on a table with appropriate distancing. And you probably have always already seen these drive-through types of programs that are occurring. Um, the uh, American Red Cross is pantry uh, in the New Market Business Area is one of our key partners. They're doing a drive-through. And that makes the safety issues um, for, pronounced so that everybody keeps the appropriate distances, we're able to follow protocol, and still feed people that need it. So it's a, a, a quick and swift change in a number of our programs, but uh, we will see some delays in certain products. And uh, if you just look at your grocery shelves, you'll know which products are in high demand. You know, eggs, as an example, very high demand. Um, yet on the other hand, milk distributors are having difficulty. You know, so there's a lot of shift in the food industry. And what we're trying to do is ensure that the supply chain is stable. And uh, we're fortunate in Massachusetts that we have a state commodity program uh, called MEFAP. And we're also fortunate that we have USDA commodities. All of those are in the pipeline 
uh, as well. We're talking to Catherine DeMaio. She's president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. You know, restaurants don't impact, all the closed restaurants don't impact you, or do they? They do. So they they mostly, so there's two pieces to that, Marjorie. One is their supplier, they were, uh, there are many businesses that were reliant on servicing colleges, university, mass theaters, restaurants. So that has ended for those vendors. And those vendors are now looking for other places. The second is that their workers are in being furloughed, laid off to their closures. So there are sort of two sides to this coin. One is that the vendor may not have a place to move its product, to sell the product. And then the other is that the location is having workers that need food assistance and may have never gone to a food pantry in their community. So both are true. What we have been able to do in that last few weeks is to address food resources that are sitting in those uh, schools, colleges, universities, et cetera. Those have been picked up. And uh, we work with a partner, Love and Spoonful, also is another partner mm-hmm. with us that is able to pick up and deploy and food for free out of Cambridge and a number of uh, these are smaller programs that are able to be very nimble in the community and, and grab that product. That product, for example, is done. It doesn't exist now. And how do you help these vendors transition to retail? Some can, some cannot. But the situation of the worker now is prominent. Those workers need help because they've been laid off. Catherine, how's your uh, stress level? Hi. <laughs> is, it, is it really fine? I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Hi. I mean, it's like, I said, oh, no, you said hi. hi. Oh, I'm sorry. So how no, do you, no, no. I'm I, serious. No. How do you, when you have demand yeah. that goes up 50% for something yes, where yes, there was huge yes. demand to begin with, how do you, how do you yeah. stay yeah. mentally healthy through something like this? No, it's an, uh, thank you for asking. I think that the physical health of our essential crew, I mean, we have 120 uh, employees at GMBFB. And most of them are working from home, but truck drivers, warehouse associates, shippers, yeah. receivers, those folks are moving a lot more food, twice as much food. You know, think about, you know, they're, they're receiving and moving, you know, two and a half, three, sometimes four more trailer loads or more a day in and out of the system. And, and you know, when you're getting 150 trailer loads a day, now, you know, now you're getting, it's just, it's phenomenal what, what is occurring. So stress is high relative to health and ensuring that people can take care of themselves both in the organization and follow all the protocols uh, as well as when they go home. And we're doing, an, you know, a number of things to make sure they, they can be safe and offering them uh, uh, some resources as well as increased compensation because they are taking the most risk and, and to be able to make sure that they, uh, take care of themselves, and you know, and I'll give you an example. We had a we had a very good conversation about whether we should open Patriots Day as an example or not. You know, and given the volume of food that these folks are moving, we decided they needed a break. You know, they just needed the day off to to breathe, reset, see their families, and then come back in. It was always a holiday for us, but in these times, you're trying to figure out what to push and what not. But you know, we are grateful to our essential team uh, for 
being like a lot of workers, whether it's retail at the grocery or it's, you know, the, the truck drivers moving food across this country, uh, whether it's the restaurant workers that are trying to be redeployed. Um, so we are uh, deeply grateful to our team, and uh, thank you for asking, and I'll be sure to pass along that care and concern. <laughs> uh, we're talking with Catherine D'Amato, President and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. You talked to our colleague, Joe Matthew, about volunteers. Mm. That's been tough mm. as well, correct? It has, and this is true for that network of agencies that we serve. So if you think of here's the food bank kind of in the center, and then there's you know, 500 organizations that we serve, they too are having the difficulty. So we would have 100 volunteers a day uh, at least, and evenings and Saturdays we're running uh, 100, 100 volunteers maybe in a week. And that is true also with our site. So they're having – Challenges. That's why you move. We're moving to making the boxes for them. You know, whether it's uh, pre-packed produce boxes or pre-packed uh, uh, non-perishables, to make it so much easier for them right now because they don't have the capability to do what they used to do. People need to stay home. We get that. They need to stay home and be safe and follow the CDC protocol. We are having volunteers to come in the building. We're looking for what we would call small groups of up to 10, following the state's protocol uh, of healthy volunteers. We are asking people a series of uh, protocol questions. Uh, there are thermometers to take temperatures to ensure uh, all of that, uh, you know, all of the similar protocol that you would have anywhere you would go right now if you are an essential volunteer. No assumptions anymore, Marjorie. The world has changed. Yeah. So let's discuss some of the logistical things, if we can, Catherine D'Amato. Uh, uh, first of all, if someone yeah. is in one of those, what is it, 190 communities in eastern Massachusetts that sure. you serve, sure. and they're new to this, and their need is new, yeah, and sure. they don't know where to go or how to find out where to go, well, how do they get that information? It's a great question. Um, if they have the capability to go online, go to gbfb.org, which stands for Greater Boston Food Bank, go to the Need Help just click it on right on the front page. It will give you, by your zip code, all of the pantries in your community. Uh, and also, on that page, it lists the uh, uh, means by which to apply for food stamps if you are eligible, and a lot of people will be right now. Second, the Project Bread Food Resource Hotline number is there, so you can call, and they will also give you, if you prefer a phone uh, inquiry to let you know where the pantries are, but also where those uh, emergency um, school meal sites are for those families that have a zero to 18 year old. And then lastly, you can always call 211. And by mm -hmm. doing so, that's a statewide resource where there's more than just food resources there. There's transportation, there's issues relative to employment and jobs and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that site has most of the social determinants that are related to our health are all there. So they have been awesome, too. That's a, uh, a uh, Metro West United Way funded program that serves the state. So you are correct that there are a lot of people that will have never sought food assistance. They don't know where to go. And it is very important that we help people understand that it's okay to seek this help. We are here to help you. We're here to make sure that 
your food security remains hopefully high and that you can focus on caring for your family and other needs. So, Catherine D'Amato, I I read, I think today, I don't know when I read anything, is that uh, the young star for the Celtics, Jason Tatum, has donated a quarter of a million dollars, which I I think is just wonderful to you guys. Uh, First of all, how did that come about? And then the larger question is, if other people, even if they can't come up with 250 grand, want to help, how do they help financially? But first, how did the Tatum connection happen? Well, it went through a... um, refrigerated cold storage company that uh, we use for outside storage. And they made a donation and challenged um, others to match. And he stepped forward uh, to do so. And uh, it's quite remarkable, right, to see the resiliency of folks that have resources, uh, whether they're corporations or individuals, or in this case, you know, athletes that are stepping forward all over the country. I mean, Jason is an example of that as well. And uh, he's challenged also his network of folks, and we expect there to be a few more MBA uh, or gifts from uh, MBA folks. But, you know, we have uh, uh, many others that have stepped forward, and it's an example, again, of resiliency when people are in need of help or community responds, whether it's the the mayor's resiliency fund or now this new statewide fund that the governor's established or small smaller pools of funds, uh, it matters. And no, not everybody can give $250,000, but you can do something. You can volunteer. You can donate. But you can also check in on your neighbors and uh, check in on uh, what's going on around you and be aware and uh, help somebody uh, if, and, if and when you can, given this very complicated, pervasive situation that we're in. So if you want to make a donation, even if you can't dribble behind your back, you go to, I assume, gbfb.org as well for that? That's correct. And uh, we would be happy to have your support. And uh, everything matters. You know, uh, small dollars add to big dollars. And we expect to be in this situation for a long, long time. Uh, We don't think this is going to be over quickly. And we think that, especially with the unemployment numbers, that we will be here to help folks. And that's that's what we're here for. Our mission has never been more operationalized uh, than it is uh, the last few weeks. Well, you know, Catherine, as you go, I just want to underscore what you said at the beginning, that even in one of the best economies ever and one of the most wealthy states in the nation, that even here, yeah. one in 11 people yeah. before this disaster uh, were food insecure. That's, an, that's a really high number uh, considering, yeah. you know, where we're supposedly at. But thank you very, very much for Good being with, with us. Good luck with everyone, Catherine. Thanks well, so much. Well, we, we thank you for, uh, for getting the word out, and we appreciate that uh, you're helping to make sure – People have you in their homes right now to hear you and and to connect. And so thank you for just uh, making sure our citizens know that there's food for them and we're here to help them. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine, Catherine DeMano is president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank, to, Food Bank, that is, to learn more about it or to help, to donate, to volunteer, to do whatever you can, go to gbfb.org. That's, of course, greaterbostonfoodbank.org. Coming up. Could there have been a, been a better airline bailout? And what are you doing about dyeing your hair? Travel writer Christopher Muther joins us for that and more next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie. And so what does a travel writer write about when a pandemic has immobilized the entire world and the only voyage anyone is taking about is the maximum distance that droplets carrying the coronavirus can travel? In Christopher Muther's case, obviously, he writes about flobies, freeze-dried foods, and sharing a bowl, which is disgusting, with his cat. He joins us online to talk about this and more. Uh, Christopher, of course, is a great columnist and travel writer for the Boston Globe. Hello, Christopher Muther. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? We're well, good. Well, we're very good. But before we get to all of what Jim just mentioned, I, I got worked up into a frenzy reading about this bailout for the $50 billion bailout for the airlines. You did, did a column talking about some of the consumer-friendly strings we could have attached to this and didn't. Like what? I mean, there are so many things that kind of drove me crazy about this. You know, we're... The government was handing the airlines $50 billion. Uh, in the meantime, we had just been, people had just been kind of testifying against the airlines in Congress for things that needed to change, like allowing children to sit next to their parents without charging a fee for it, things like that. So in, you know, in this particular case, I feel like we had an opportunity to get airlines to kind of limit ancillary fees. That's, you know, when they charge for baggage and choosing seats and all of those things, um, you know, things like making the internet free on flights, allowing sick customers to stay home without charging them a crazy fee, fixing the boarding process. You know, I could go on and on. You guys have heard me complain about airlines and some of these details before, but I really do feel like there's no way to kind of force a corporation to make some changes. Um, like a $50 billion carrot dangling in front of them. By the way, I don't want to contradict you. You're the travel writer. But while the airlines were not required under the bailout to allow a kid to sit next to his or her parents for free, the airlines did concede that if you want to put your kid in the overhead rack, that was fine. And they were willing. <laughs> and I think as a first step, Christopher, that is something they should have done. You know, you think you were driven nuts by the fact that there was no – no concessions for travelers uh, uh, exacted out of this uh, $50 billion carrot, as you call it. Marjorie and I are just yes. both reading a piece yesterday. Oh, Talk about enraging. Enraging. From yesterday's Washington Post. U.S. Airlines won a $50 billion bailout, is the title. They spent $45 billion buying back their stocks. And so the point of this piece by Alan Sloan, the business writer there, is they sent almost the exact same amount of money to Wall Street over the past five years as they say in this column, to keep shareholders happy. And what essentially the stock buyback without giving people a headache raises the price of the stock so shareholders are happy. It makes uh, executives happy because often they're comp- – not only do they have stock options, but so they benefit there. Their compensation is often tied to the stock price, so they benefit from that. So they essentially chose – to spend almost the exact same amount of money that the taxpayers are now giving them to enrich themselves. And as Bob Reich, former Secretary of Labor, said to us yesterday, if they're in big trouble, law already exists to take care of these kinds of companies, declare, file under Chapter 11 and declare bankruptcy. So this whole thing is a scam from beginning to end. No, it's maddening because you know U.S. Airlines spent 96% of their cash profits on stock buybacks to enrich investors and their own executives. So when you think about it, it's like if they just put a little bit of that away for a rainy day as opposed to, you know, buying back stock, um, 
you know, maybe they wouldn't have needed to lean upon the government quite as much as they did. And there was a lot of people kind of before all of this happened that was saying, you know, the airlines shouldn't be bailed out. You know, they're, they're corporations. They shouldn't be bailed out. But, you know, the the sticky wicket to all of that is that you know, without the without the airlines, you know, we would be it would be a diff, it would be very very difficult, and so many people would lose their jobs who work not only for the airlines but in tourism. So, so mandate you know, that all the money goes to keeping your employees on, just well, like the small business loans you know do too. You know, it's incredible that we we screwed this up after the two thousand seven and two thousand eight recession. And now we're doing the exact same thing just 12 I mean, years later. In terms later. of major corporations, yes. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like taxpayers get taken for a ride, um, not just then with, with TARP and the stimulus thing, but again now. Taken for a ride in a cramped plane, too. So, Christopher Muther, you just uh, you just wrote a piece, well, you wrote a piece that just appeared on the Globe website about oh, a I minute and a half ago. I think you should start, before you describe it, the piece about who exactly is Mrs. Davenport and what is her relationship to you personally? And be be transparent. So, Mrs. Davenport is my co-worker um, <laughs> slash um, roommate. Yeah. Uh, she's also a cat. She is a cat, yes. She's a cat. Um, and, you know, the good thing is, so I did a taste test. I'll just back in and describe what we should be talking about mm-hmm. rather than my cat. Although yeah. I could talk about my cat all day. Oh, Don't okay, get good. started. She's really adorable. Uh, <laughs> she is, yeah. So um, I decided to taste test a bunch of freeze-dried meals because, mm. you know, with all the warnings about supermarkets and going out, I thought this is what – doomsday preppers do they've got a lot of freeze-dried meals around so i thought i'd try a bunch and my my husband had absolutely no interest in them so you know i can't call my friends over to help so my the lovely mrs davenport assisted me in taste testing freeze-dried meals so you have to give us a. By the way, freeze dried meal. Do you remember, Marjorie, when your kids were young and you go to the science museum? What you always bought for them was like the the astronauts' freeze dried meals, and you took them home, and they tasted I like never, sawdust. You I never, never did that. I never did that. No. Okay. In any case, no, it was it was the the astronaut ice cream. That's the one you're thinking of, Jim. That's what I always got it when I was a kid. Well, in any case, <laughs> you were a kid at a different cream. time. So what you did is you is you you <laughs> reviewed. You and your cat reviewed uh, yeah. five different items. I want to start with one that I found interesting. And then if you can tell us about a few, you know, sort of how many thumbs up and how your cat felt about them. Here is how yeah. you reviewed the chicken and dumplings. Here's your first line. Imagine, if you will, that somebody placed a chicken pot pie in their back pocket, which, as Marjorie knows, I've done on more than one occasion, <laughs> sat on it for about an hour, which I've also done, scraped the crushed yeah. remains into a bag, and then served it to you. So that's the beginning. How were the chicken and dumplings, and what did Mrs. Davenport think? I thought they were delicious. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know, like kind of a, a mess, essentially. You know, it's, they weren't chicken and dumplings, and I guess there's no way to truly replicate that in a freeze-dried package that you dump water into and wait for 10 minutes. Um, you know, all of the things that I tried were, like, over-salted, which, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't meant for, you know, gourmet palates, obviously. It's meant for hikers and people who need food with a 30-year shelf life, and he doesn't need that. <laughs> shelf life. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, Marjorie. It's a 30-year shelf oh life. Oh, my God. 
So if, if I have to shelter at home for 30 years and this is Davenport, well, first she'd eat me, but then <laughs> I have enough food. Uh, but yeah, they were, so the chicken and dumplings she enjoyed because it looked a lot like her normal cat food, <laughs> kind of a mushy uh-huh. thing. Um, but, you know, one of them that wasn't too bad was the beef stroganoff. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know how you really mess up beef stroganoff. I love beef stroganoff. How, what do you mean out of a freeze dried package with boiling water? That's how you mess it up. So, <laughs> just, like, how would it come if you ordered beef stroganoff in a restaurant and you rated that, let's say, a ten on a scale of one to ten? How would the okay. freeze dried alternative uh, uh, rank? Oh, maybe a four. That's not horrible. That's not horrible. No, it's not horrible. I mean, some of the others I would give like a two or three. And trust me, I know bad food because I grew up on my mother's cooking. So <laughs> I, trust me, I know what's good and what is not good. Which yeah. did Mrs. Davenport like the most? She liked the beef stroganoff the most as well because mm-hmm. I had to pull her away from the bowl after a couple of bites. Cause is that really true? Finish that thing off. It's really true. Some. She would not touch the Thai chicken and noodles. She, like, stared at it. And, again, just, you know, for background, Mrs. Davenport will eat anything. <laughs> so this is, you know, she just stared at it, and <laughs> that was that. We're talking so, to Chris from you, their travel writer for the Boston Globe. Yeah, so um, great story you wrote about the uh, the wonderful vacation in Malta that Bart Hanlon from uh, Massachusetts Harvard, did Mass. not actually – Enjoy much? What happened to Bart? Well, I mean, the the poor man was going to Malta for work. And in the process of going there, the German government or the, no, the Malta government had said, if you come through Germany, you need to be quarantined. And this happened as he was flying from <laughs> Germany to Malta. Oh, so, bad timing. <laughs> Bad, but as you remember, things and actually things still are changing so rapidly that at that point there was really no way to predict that borders were going to be collapsing so quickly. So he was there for uh, how many days did he end up? Almost two weeks, and then at one point, so he, he was staying at a beautiful hotel, and he was the only person left at the hotel. <laughs> And there was a small, he couldn't leave his room, there was a small window where the government allowed a loophole, and he kind of snuck out. He didn't really sneak out, but it was his chance to get out of Malta and back to the U.S., so he had sort of a trying time of it. But, you know, when you think, you think, oh, I'm stuck in a hotel room in Malta with a beautiful view of the ocean. Beautiful what do I have view. To complain about? Yeah, but, but he couldn't go. You know, that when, he's looking at all these people out on the beach. They seem to be far apart. I don't know if they were doing the social distancing thing, but there's all these people far apart on the beach right outside his hotel room, and he w- couldn't even go visit. He had like a little balcony where yeah. he could look down longingly at the beach, and that was about it. How painful. How painful. We had, There was a story in the New York Times, a, a similar thing, this couple that went on their honeymoon 
uh, and and they went to uh, where the heck was it in Mald- the Mald- Mald- Di- Maldives? Maldives. I think How it, do you say that? I don't know. Well, anyway, Maldives. Yeah. Maldives. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. And I guess they were all excited because they'd never spent the night together before. They they had not lived together before they got married. And so they, they say. So anyway. they say that's yeah. their claim anyway. That's and, like me and my husband. Exactly. Until marriage night. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's you right. Know. Everybody was uh, very virginal. But anyway, they mm-hmm. get over there, and they're stuck there too, and they're running out of money because they have to keep paying. And the place, oh, I think they geez. gave them a reduced rate, but the place was 750 bucks a night, and they're mm-hmm. stranded. They're wow. stranded. He doesn't yeah. want to talk about something married. that somebody else wrote, by the way. Do you notice that there's a reluctance <laughs> on Christopher's part to well, uh, engage? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, no, I, I'm letting, see, Jim, this, the, here's a concept for you. You mm-hmm. let someone else talk. <laughs> Let them finish, and then you step in. I don't know what you're talking about at all, Christopher. Christopher. We don't know about that at Boston Public Radio. We sure as hell don't. Sorry, I'm a little little feisty. I've been in the house for a month. One of the best details in the story was how the staff was apparently all still there. So the room boy was checking on them five times a day. The breakfast time, they had nine waiters loitering by their side. Hostesses, bussers, and assorted chefs circulated conspicuously. Every time they took a sip of their water, somebody came over and refilled it. They were going absolutely (laughs) bananas, Uh, this couple in their 20s, plus they were going broke. Well, also, at least they were allowed out of their room, so that's... You know, that's a plus. They were. They were. All these pictures of them posing all alone on a deck in the mall. Dives? Dives? Maldives. Where is? I don't even know where that. Where is that? Far away. Far away. Where is it? Um, I'm Googling it right now. Okay, fine. (laughs) Well, when you find it. Now, you wrote a couple of lifestyle pieces. Well, I guess you would argue the freeze-dried thing is, is a lifestyle piece. You wrote about what a lot of people have been thinking about. Which is, uh, what do you do about your hair? Right. Uh, because you yeah. can't go get your hair cut. And I, I want you to, I don't know if, do those stores as seen on TV still exist? The Flobies? I want you to know that you were talking to somebody, and Marjorie knows because I brought her That's into right. the studio get about 15 years ago. I actually had a Flobie. So let's work backwards. <laughs> what is a Flobie? And then what was your thesis, Christopher Muther? Well, first, the Flobie is the attachment for your vacuum cleaner, which. I guess you would know this better than I would, Jim. Mm. It has like blades that move mm. when from the suction, and then it also pulls all the hair that it's cutting into the vacuum. So there's no cleanup, no fuss, Correct. no muss. Um, so I, you know, and what I when I was watching like videos because it was I guess it came out in late '80s, early '90s. Um, the videos, the two hairstyles it seemed to be able to do was the Rue McClanahan. And the Richard Dean Anderson. Those seem to be like the only styles it actually could produce. Um, and Jim, I'm guessing you had the Rue McClanahan for a while. That's going to throw that out there. So that's the Floby. And well, can we stay on the Floby I... for a second before you get to your thesis, just so people understand? When you bought sure. a Floby, which I got for like twenty nine ninety nine, about I don't know thirty years ago. You realize after you get the Floby, they don't tell you this, and they do tell you it's got to be attached to a vacuum cleaner. They don't uh-huh. tell you that it has to be attached to a canister vacuum cleaner. So after spending twenty nine ninety nine, which I thought was a bargain for a Floby, I had to spend $300 to get a canister vacuum cleaner <laughs> so I could use the Floby. And what it did, it was brilliant, actually. I don't know if they still exist. Oh, you actually say they're no longer on Amazon, so they probably don't, or at least new well, ones. they're still around. They were just sold out. Okay. So what it does is you can adjust the number of inches that you want 
your hair to be the amount of hair to be left. So you could do a half inch, an inch, and that sort of thing. And then, as you say, it just suctions your hair into the nozzle, and mm-hmm. it cuts it off. Which, and as you say, all the hair that is shed yeah. goes right into the Very canister efficient. vacuum cleaner. Okay, so that's the Floby. What was your point? That's the Floby. Um, so the the story was essentially how we're all trapped and we can't get to our hairdresser, stylist, colorist, whatever your um, hair style of choice is. So, you know, meanwhile, we, like those of us who um, ha- can't leave our houses, we still have meetings on Zoom and FaceTime. So, you know, people are wearing baseball hats or sitting in dark corners of their house. So they, their hair issues are not as apparent to their coworkers or bosses. And so I talked to a whole bunch of people who were kind of in that, you know, they were having that problem and also a bunch of hairdressers who were saying they expect they're going to have some problem hair coming in (laughs) (laughs) when this is all over. And, and I can speak from experience on this one because I had like missed my haircut a couple of weeks ago. And so my hair was a little unruly and I decided (laughs) to take matters into my own hands and it looked like I had accidentally put my head in a lawnmower. Should buy a Floby. I should have bought a Floby when I had the chance because the Rue McClanahan would have been better than what I ended up looking like. So I want you to know that even though you are our favorite travel writer, one of the finest travel writers in America, it was not you who couldn't Google fast enough, but a good friend of mine and Marjorie's who just had to text me to say that the mole, whatever they are, Deves, Dives, Asia. is I, no, near India, is what uh, he India. said. And he would know, I think. Okay. So. I was, okay. you know, I was, I was staying on topic. So <laughs> okay. I, I Googled it, but, Fine. well, you know, I was multitasking. Apparently I wanted to, uh, I wanted to stick with my great story, but yeah. You know, before we speak to another great story you wrote, are you going out of your mind? I don't mean just the isolation, but you move for a living. How, how are you dealing with this beyond all the rest of us who have other stresses how are you dealing with that stress you know at first it was kind of like this is amazing i'm going to be home for a little while and i can get some stuff done around the house and then it became a little bit of a nightmare as i've had to cancel a whole bunch of trips um and even trips that i've already completed i couldn't write about you know for instance i had done this this cruise back in february and then all of a sudden I can't really write about a cruise yeah. right now. <laughs> God. Yeah. So it's been um it's been challenging um but it's also been kind of nice to be home and to spend time with Mrs. Davenport. She's, <laughs> she's happy to have me. I'm sure around. your husband is happy to hear that. <laughs> hey Christopher, we asked you this when we spoke to you last, which is the beginning of this nightmare. How are hotels and airlines and cruise lines and whatever else Dealing with refunds for people. I know it's not uniform. We just uniform. got an email from a travel agent saying that the airlines are shafting most people. Really? What, what, is, what is the deal as far as you know, Christopher Mueller? Yeah, well, what happened last week was the federal government came out and said to some of the airlines that have been a little too strict that, you know, you have to start giving these people proper refunds. You know, JetBlue... And United were sort of the tightest that I saw in terms of giving people refunds. I mean, the the normal course of action is that, you know, in normal times is if 
your flight is canceled and you can't get rescheduled within a few hours, the airline just gives you a refund. Um, And that, of course, isn't the case these days because so many flights are getting canceled and not rescheduled. But instead, airlines have been trying to get away with just giving vouchers for future travel. And, you know, I've heard from readers who are saying, you know, a lot of older readers who have been saying, I'm not going to be doing any traveling, you know, in the near future. You know, the, there's usually a year window that you have with a voucher, and they don't want to travel for a year, and so they want their money back, but the airline isn't giving them their money back. So it's been kind of this big morass of, you know, just endless back and forth, and it's a story that I'm working on now is trying to figure out and give people advice right. on what to do. Cruise ships you know, have been really, really good about it. But Christopher, you know, even though they're not getting a bailout, because I learned a couple of days ago, because most of them, to avoid taxation, are not don't have the corporate headquarters in the United States, or they're not U.S. corporations. You know, Christopher, in one of the stories I read, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that they said that in other countries, once again, we get seem to get the shaft here in the United States, that in other countries, regula- airlines that are more strictly regulated do have to uh, do something if your flight is delayed for five hours or whatever. Um, exactly. Yeah. That's so completely true. It's, so uh, consumers here get the short end of the stick once again. Yeah. No. We there's never been something similar than the European law, which allows. I think it's. I think it's six hours of inconvenience. You completely get refunded, or you you get refunded. You file a claim, and I've done it a few times because I've had flights that have been. Um, canceled or delayed, and as we all know, that's a nightmare. But yeah, in the U.S., it's it's different, and it's always been more challenging, and especially yeah. now. The other problem too is a lot of airlines are just overwhelmed with people calling and um, trying to change plans and cancel. So it's been I've been telling people to kind of if they're not having luck, let things settle a bit because they will. Um, yeah. And then really, you know, keep track of things, write letters, and then then approach. By the way, so, before we leave this, I, I don't know how much the legislation did mandate, as you were suggesting a second ago, that there be refunds. I mean, getting back to the original topic with you about extracting concessions from I don't think we airlines, did. how could that not be the minimal concession that airlines could give up in return for $50 billion? The one concession, which, you know, there was a, a letter from the the association. Is it the American Association of Airlines? Anyway, it's, uh, I don't know. They were, they were saying that they would stop the stock buyback after getting this money. Mm. Um, but there's but no enforcement there, of that, I, I don't believe. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a really good yeah. question. I mean, I think that's why it, some people like our own Senator Elizabeth Warren have called this a slush fund. Um, that it's, an, it, yeah, it's just it's another scam on the taxpayers. Anyway, you and Beth Titel wrote this great story about Zoom meetings. We've all been doing a lot of Zoom meetings, um, but they can be perilous in circumstances, in certain circumstances, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us yeah, what has happened I to like some of these word. Zoomsters. <laughs> <laughs> What happened? Um, so, well, I mean, Beth and I had this epiphany to write this story after a work Zoom meeting. And so our coworkers, after we wrote the story, were immediately saying, you know, which one am I on this list? We, we wrote the 12 people, essentially the 12 people you don't want to see on Zoom. 
So, <laughs> you, know, okay. it, you know, like the like the I couldn't be bothered to pick up coworker yes. who like their house looks like it's something out of hoarders. You can kind of see behind them. <laughs> the uh, yeah. you know the, the someone with the poor internet connection who always like freezes up every five yep. minutes. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. There's the, I think we called someone the no bra, no shoes, no problem, <laughs> where, you know, they, like, show up and, like, their hair is all askew and they're, like, you know, kind of busting out all over because they think I'm wearing pajamas at work and everyone else is, too. So, And then you have the opposite end of that where it's someone who has, like, perfect lighting Yes. And everything's been set up like they're going to make an appearance on CNN. It's like it's so fascinating to see the different types of people on Zoom and how they kind of approach it. And, you know, you can always tell not to sound ageist, but you can tell sort of who's older and who's younger by where their face is in relation to the camera. So there's always the people whose face is kind of half cut off on Zoom, <laughs> or you see, like, their arm moving in a weird way. I don't know if the Globe did it or somebody else did it, but somewhere I read an interview <laughs> with movie lighting uh, directors about how to have the best... It was Meredith Goldstein. Who was it did. Meredith it Goldstein? I think it was, oh, yeah, it was a great Globe, piece. I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. And how you know, you're supposed to have the... Never have overhead light, have light next to you. You know, daylight is the best, but you might want to put a cloth over it or something so it makes it a little bit softer. <laughs> I mean, it was a whole production about how you can look good on Zoom. It was great. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things... And Jim, you may have noticed this on uh, Greater Boston, which... I always think is fascinating is, you know, a lot of, obviously a lot of TV um, reporters are now kind of brought, or anchors even, or weathermen are broadcasting in their homes, and they didn't read Meredith's piece. No. (laughs) (laughs) The the lighting's bad. The sound is horrible. I'm like, you're a professional. You should have this down. But we didn't, you know, we didn't want to pick on people specifically. That, you know, that's not my thing. I'm a nice guy. Christopher, <laughs> I think there needs to be a story written about who's got the bestest bookshelves. Oh, I mean, you're, that's everybody, right. He's the guy for if this. If I was still writing a column, this would be it. You, 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 you see everybody's got they got crummy bookshelves or they've got the most perfect bookshelves, Anderson Cooper, I would say, and our own Art Kaplan. Art Kaplan, our medical ethicist, was on CNN this weekend. And they then were you have beautiful. to decide, you know, which books are in there. They're going to be the first editions of Mark Twain or something like that, you know, show how cool exactly. you are or, you know, what. But, I mean, it's really fun to look at the bookshelves. Some people, you had a guy on your show, Jim, had the worst display ever. Well, it's not nice. I mean, it was like, well, I'm not, I'm not oh, saying Oh, it's Christopher, it was. actually. That's... <laughs> And so it was. I didn't want to really show. But it's very important. Like suppose you don't have a bookshelf. Some guy was on the other day and had a bookshelf was about six inches wide. It's very sad. I think if you only have a six inch wide bookshelf, you don't want to be in front of the bookshelves for your exactly, for your, for your right. fifteen minutes of fame. Anyway, it was a yeah, great that's, piece. That's kind of an interesting cliche of having to be in front of a bookcase to say, "Look, I'm smart." I exactly. Own books. <laughs> exactly. But but I think almost everybody that's where they are. are they not. I think so. Hey, Christopher, uh, it's a pleasure, as always. Uh, say hi to Mrs. Davenport yeah, for us. Yeah, I'm glad she did the the dirty work on testing all those foods for you, Christopher. I will send her your best, <laughs> and it's wonderful to talk to the two of you. I'm glad to hear you're well. Thank you, you very much, Christopher well. Muther. Christopher is a columnist and travel writer for the Boston Globe, uh, and Christopher Muther, M-U-T-H-E-R, writes very amusing stuff, which you need in these troubled times. 
Anyway, coming up in defiance of all public health guidelines, Wisconsin is going ahead with today's primary. People are waiting two and three hours to vote. CNN's John King joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie and Join us online to go over the latest political headlines. This is John King. John, of course, is CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 8. And you get to see him more time now. We love in the middle of the day on CNN during the week. John, it's great to talk to you. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you guys holding up? So Wait, far, so, so good. Far, How about you? So far, so good. You've had a couple of colleagues um, come down with the virus, though. I have. I have had a couple of colleagues. Uh, my brother, one of my brothers up there in Massachusetts. Oh, man. oh I'm uh, sorry. He's doing all right, but he says it is nasty. He says it's his, he's my baby brother. He's in his 40s. He's my baby brother. Um, but he says it's as uh, nasty as it comes. He says he's never been so sick. So everybody. Really? Just stay safe. Stay safe. Yeah, he'll be he'll be okay. He's tough. But to hear him complain, that's what tells me it's nasty because he's not a complainer. Send him our um, best, please, John. Well, that's been one of the best things about listening to your colleague, Chris Cuomo, because he I think he's 48 or 49. I, 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 we always joke Pretty about how shape. he's in great shape. He always has those T-shirts on when he's out at the hurricanes and stuff like that. And he talked about be, having the, ch- uh, the chills and tremors so badly that he chipped a tooth. So he's been very good about warning us about how this can be. But anyway, uh, John King, um, we're looking at CNN in the studio here and seeing these extremely long lines in Wisconsin. The governor, I know, uh, wanted to postpone the election, uh, but the state Supreme Court and the Republican legislature wanted otherwise. What happened? Well, the Rep- the governor, you know, finally decided this was not safe, and he tried to stop it, and uh, probably waited too late to do that. But the Democratic governor decided in the end. And look, the, there's been a lot of, dis- you know, guess what? There's dysfunction, there's politics, there's polarization across America. So you have the, remember, not long ago there was a Republican governor of Wisconsin. Tony Evers has been there for a little bit now, but he fights constantly with the Republican legislature. They would not go along uh, with, they he wanted to extend the governor wanted to extend mail-in balloting, absentee balloting. Uh, and the Republicans in the legislature did not want to go along. So, and this went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, five to four. You can, you know, predict your judges at home who voted how. It was a political, you know, partisan by presidential appointee on that one too. And the, so you see these pictures now, and the people in Wisconsin, there are fewer polling sites open because they don't have enough poll workers. People are in lines, and uh, bless these people. Some of them are waiting three hours or more. Yeah. They have their masks on uh, because since they're being told this is your only choice to vote, they're going out to vote. Um, uh, look, it does not look safe. Uh, let's hope everybody's okay. And let's hope, it's probably wishful thinking, that this does start a conversation about, you know, should we have more mail-in balloting, more extended absentee balloting? What are we going to do if both conventions are postponed or made into virtual events? And the Democratic Convention's already been moved, obviously, but postponed. Um, this question about how do we vote, how do we conduct elections, is going to be with us all the way uh, through November, even if we get to a better place. Uh, and so we need to have – I say this too often. You guys are going to laugh at me. We need to have an adult conversation about this. And even amid a pandemic where there has been some bipartisanship, it's striking to me to watch the polarization in Wisconsin. And then it trickles all the way up to the Supreme Court. You know, John, I, I, I don't understand what the public argument – I understand the partisan sickness uh, in Wisconsin. What do Republicans say publicly as to why they're willing to put – uh, uh, voters at risk rather than postponing to a later date or extending absentee voting or whatever the alternative was. What's their public argument? 
you get it. You get several different arguments. One of them is the "forgive me, this is America." Damn it! You know we're tough. We mm-hmm. can't take not even a pandemic can take away our elections. And that's, so it's, I guess that's a play to patriotism. Um, I know there are public health experts who are rolling their eyes at me when I say that. Um, I, I kind of get it reflexively that you know you know we're not going to let anything delay our elections. That's a great place to start. But then you got to think. You know, uh, there's a lot of great places, you know, to start on principle. Uh, but, you know, at times we have to bend our principles. And this, look, uh, other ones say uh, it was the it was the rest of it. It was extending, you know, leaving open um, the extended voting, allowing you to mail in ballots well after Election Day. They just said that, they, you know, they didn't like the plan. If you if you did not have the in-person voting today, they did not like the plan going forward. And there were other arguments as well. But the main part is the Democratic governor wanted it, and the Republican legislature, if he says up, they say down. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's just the state of play in that state. Um, so that's where we are, and they're going to vote, and we'll count them tonight. And uh, the president encouraged people to vote, too. We think of this just as the presidential primary. There are some state judicial races you know, on the ballot and other things on the ballot, and uh, We'll see if it, you know, does it impact things? Do you get a different result because you have a different voting universe? I'm not smart enough to know that, and but when we count the votes, maybe we'll, maybe there'll be something to think about after this. You know, one more example for the moment of this uh, this frightening continuing divide in this country. I think you were anchoring when I saw the headline this morning about uh, South Dakota has. The governor is predicting that what seventy percent of the people of South Dakota could be infected. Yet there's no stay-at-home directive from the governor's office. What's the what's the public rationale? We know what the president's rationale is. They're all great governors, and they're all making their own decisions. I don't tell them what to do. What's the governor, him or herself, saying? It's Christy Nome. Uh, she's interesting. You might remember she was elected as a Tea Party member of Congress. Then she went back and ran for governor. I'm going to give her credit. Again, I don't pretend to be smart enough when it comes to the public health questions here. I'm going to give her credit in that she has been uh, available and transparent in explaining herself. She doesn't have a policy, and then she goes and hides and won't answer questions mm-hmm. about it. Uh, she has been very out there, so she's accountable, if you will. Her view is, and it's an, look, we live in a republic, right? Uh, this is this is a great question, whether it's about holding elections, whether it's about stay at home orders, whether it's about is this a state responsibility or is it the mayor's responsibility or the governor's responsibility or the president's responsibility? Is this a FEMA responsibility? This pandemic is testing our cooperation as a country and within states and within regions. Uh, And her point is that this is a republic of 50 states, and especially as you get out there farther farther to the west, you know, the tradition is government doesn't tell you what to do. That's why we moved out here. That's why we came west. That's why we went out to the prairie. And, um, you know, we don't want the government telling us what to do. Uh, She views it as an over-excessive use of government power to order people to do it. You can recommend things. You can give them good guidance. And you also have a state that lets, you know, again, give her some grace. In the case of South Dakota, you have Sioux Falls. I spoke to the mayor today uh, who has done some things in, his, in the city uh, to tell people to stay apart. He has a city ordinance. Um, but, you know, you don't have a lot of big metropolitan areas. So social distancing is kind of built into rural life as part of the governor's argument as well, that you're already more spread out. So just be smart. Um, I think the thing to watch here, Jim, in the states especially that don't have these orders and I, I've been looking so far, and it's preliminary, so you can't be conclusive, but you look at Tennessee versus its neighbor, Kentucky. Kentucky's Democratic governor acted very quickly, in cooperation, by the way, with the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. They kept in touch constantly. And the Kentucky caseload, you know, it's bad, like it is everywhere, but if you look at the line, it's a relatively flat, slow increase line. You look at Tennessee, and it's a straight-up arrow. Um, the governor there was, you know, it's not done, it was very late to move. Um, 
in months from now, when we have real data and real testing, we're going to be able to make a comparison. Is it worse in the states that acted late or didn't act at all? Uh, we can't do that now. It's, there's some data, but it's anecdotal and it's preliminary. But I do think this is going to be a big conversation, um, you know, three, four, six months from now, maybe a year from now, when we can match up these individual decisions by the states with the data. You know, John King, uh, CNN is reporting, you guys are reporting that the uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper told this Thomas Modley, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, guy, the acting Navy secretary, to apologize after he called the uh, captain of that, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt, stupid and naive for sending his letter, uh, Captain Brett Crozier, I should say, for sending that letter about needing help for all the people that were infected with the coronavirus on the uh, ship. And apparently now there are up to 230 of those sailors are uh, infected. And one of the most moving things I saw oh, in the last couple of days ever. was when you saw Captain Crozier leaving the ship after being fired, hundreds and hundreds of sailors hooting and hollering and cheering their captain. And then you have this guy, Modley, call him stupid and naive, which was... Uh, stupid and naive. Which was stupid and naive. Uh, you know, he's an American businessman. I'm not sure I got to, how he got to be the head of the Navy. I guess he went to the Naval Academy. But anyway, um, elaborate on that. What This is kind of outrageous, I think, the whole thing. And Mark Esper, who is a Trump guy, um, but uh, just thought this was beyond the pale. Look, the, uh, Captain Crozier, Commander Crozier, uh, did distribute his letter complaining about the lack of attention to COVID-19 in the Navy and specifically on his aircraft carrier. He distributed outside the chain of command. He did that. He, he broke the rules. There, there's no question about that. They decided the punishment for that was to strip him of his command, not to, you know, not to sanction him, not to reprimand him, not to do something else. Uh, they decided uh, that they were going to strip him of his command. And you're right. You saw when he left the ship was an overwhelmingly positive response. This was a commander on a, on a floating time bomb. Um, you know, I've been on these vessels. I've been on the Roosevelt as well, this specific ship. You go under the deck. There's no social distancing on a Navy ship. These sailors and Marines have to live in very close quarters in bunk beds. Imagine your tiny little cubicle you know, that you might be in on a steel case in an office and put six bunk beds in it. Well, that's what it's like under the decks of a Navy ship. And so he was appealing for help, saying, you're ignoring this. We need help. You know, help me. What, what should I do? Now, he did send the letter outside of the chain of command, and it leaked. Whether he leaked it or somebody leaked it for him, we don't know the answer to that question. Um, that's, that's, quote, unquote, wrong by the rules. Uh, in this extraordinary situation, he, he knew that. He decided he couldn't get attention. He was going to do something to get more attention. Uh, when you come back to Modley, remember, the former Secretary of the Navy, Mr. Spencer, Secretary Spencer, left. Yes. Because he said some things harshly critical of the President of the United States, and right. he was forced out. He was forced out. Uh, I take the Modley thing here as the president has you know, said he agrees with this decision, that he later said he would look into it. Uh, but Modley called onto the ship and essentially gave this, you know, your captain's an idiot, he's stupid and naive. That was to intimidate the people on that ship not to talk. They, this administration does not like accountability and facts. Look at how the president just fired another inspector general today, the inspector general overseeing the stimulus um, spending. Uh, they do not like accountability. When you stand up to them, and, and again, maybe Captain Crozier, Commander Crozier needed to be disciplined. Uh, did he need to be fired? Way above my pay grade. Um, but in all of these cases, when somebody comes forward with facts and information that are facts, they are facts, but the administration that brought us alternative facts shuts them down and then tries to intimidate other people to not speak up. That's what that call to the crew was. Do not speak up. Wait, We're talking well, to John that, King. That, that, I, I know there's a culture in the military. There is a chain of command. I get that. Um, 
but the, the, the chilling effect on truth and facts here in the middle of a pandemic when people need transparency and accountability and need to trust, when people who have titles speak, you should be able to trust them in such an anxious situation. And that is a giant problem. Well, um, John, which inspector general? I'm confused. Who got fired? The one that. Oh, there, go was ahead, a, John. there was an inspector general. He works at the Defense Department, but he was essentially selected by the, the his colleagues to be the inspector general overseeing um, the stimulus program okay. that, that okay. plays out. Uh, and so it was just, you know, he was. Um, all the coronavirus funds. I'm not not just the stimulus. That's I'm sorry. That's way more than that. All the coronavirus funds, the two trillion dollars in funds, the money that's going to buy you know buy things as well. Um, and the guy's name is Mr. Is Fine. Uh, he was the Inspector General. I believe he's at the Pentagon. Yeah, he is the, yeah. the acting Pentagon Inspector General. His colleagues, a panel of his colleagues, had picked him to oversee this money. And the president apparently didn't like what he was seeing early on, or didn't trust him, and fired him. You know, John, speaking of the uh, $2.2 trillion stimulus, there's a lot of talk about uh, COVID-19 package four. Uh, The president's talking about infrastructure. Some in Congress are saying the $1,200 one-time payment is not enough. It is pretty clear that the $349 billion, I think it is, for small businesses is uh, going to run out. One, what are the prospects of another piece of legislation? And two, if there is to be one, what is it likely to focus on? Uh, the two part is still the subject of debate. So let me come back to the one. I, I think there'll be several pieces, Jim. I think there's going to be one as soon as this week, actually, in really? the sense that this the small business funding, uh, the applications, they've had some problems ramping up the, um, the the websites to get this, and the banks have had some trouble ramping it up. Um, you know, how big of a deal is that? You know, how critical should we be? Like, let's take a deep breath and wait a few weeks. It's hard to ramp up a giant um you know, a giant program like this, but they already know they're, they're, the demand is way in, in excess of the amount of money. So they're going to come back for more money perhaps as early as this week, and I think that would be done by a voice vote. Boom, boom, put some more money into the small business part of it. Then they're going to come back with a bigger uh, next phase of the stimulus, and I think that's, you know, the last one was $2 trillion. The next one's going to be at least $1 trillion, and when you start at a trillion, guess what? You're going to climb pretty quickly up closer to another $2 trillion. Um, and that will include uh, more economic payments to Americans, probably some more supplies uh, for the coronavirus crisis, especially on the testing, which is still not ramped up anywhere near where it needs to be across America. Uh, and then um, you know, you're going to see more, more money into the economy as well. Um, Speaker Pelosi, the reason I know this is going to be done pretty quickly, I think, Jim, is that Speaker Pelosi has dropped the idea of doing infrastructure for now because mm-hmm. she knows that's controversial. And Mitch McConnell had said, let's let this you know, current one play out. Now he says we're going to have to do more. So they understand they're going to have to keep pumping money in. It's essentially a, a balloon underneath the economy to keep the economy up a little bit, to keep it, you know, it, it's, it's been devastated. You're going to see more unemployment claims this week. But there'll be another one. Uh, there's, there's a debate, you know, do you give, how much money do you give state and local governments right now that have seen all their revenue, whether it's business taxes or income taxes, all just dry up. Uh, so there's a debate over it, but there's a there's a total bipartisan agreement that more has to be done. There will be some debate over the details. You know, John, I saw you uh, an hour or so ago talking to one of your reporters about this thing that we talked to Trenny Kuznarek from NBC Sports Boston about a couple of hours ago, that Major League Baseball is seriously considering having every team play without uh, uh, fans in attendance in Arizona as early as May. Is that even remotely possible? Uh, I would say considering among a number of options, is it remotely possible? I I think that depends, A, on testing. It depends on um, 
whether the curves start to flatten everywhere, not just in New York. You're not, you know, your curve's not flattened yet in Massachusetts. Um, the curve is out in, you know, out in California and Washington State and the West Coast. But so what they're what they've been thinking of doing is, can you essentially quarantine all of Major League Baseball and, and bring them all out? You know, the, the Red Sox play in the Grapefruit League in Florida for spring training. The mm-hmm. half the league plays in the Cactus League out in Arizona. There are enough. There are you know Major League caliber facilities there. Could you go out there? Have some more spring training to get everybody back into shape, and then start the games in Arizona, essentially in a bubble, uh, you know, um, with you know no fans in the stadiums, um, but you could play the games. It's all the all the major uh, major league spring training facilities, and they're they're beautiful out there. They're about you know forty five fifty miles apart, mm-hmm. so you could have the Red Sox get one hotel, you know, the Dodgers get another hotel, and you know, and then the teams are kind of quarantined between games. It's it's what one of the things they are looking at, but they say there are a lot of ifs. The same kind of ifs that everybody else has when they're thinking about your your governor and your mayor when they're trying to reopen things. You know, where is the public health? Where are mm-hmm. the numbers on cases and deaths? Uh, and and the, and again, what's striking about this? You know, it was a month ago when the president said everybody can get it, who wants a test can get a test and they're beautiful. Every one of these conversations, whether you're having them with medical professionals there in Massachusetts, whether I'm having them with small town mayors in South Dakota or the parish presidents—that's what they call their little counties in Louisiana. Uh, or, the, or Major League Baseball, what comes up in every one of these conversations? Testing. Mm. I can't make decisions until I have more availability of testing, and I know the results. So that's still a giant problem. Yes, they're considering it. They're trying to have a plan. Again, we're, we talk about at some point, you'll, you know, you'll be at a crossroads where you can say, you can start to leave your home. You can start to go back to work. And every institution, whether it's a big corporation that makes things in a factory or a sports league, has to have a plan. Executing, I'm skeptical it will be in May. You know, John, just one last thing about the inspector general. Um, I'm I'm just reading these reports by CNN, New York Times, USA Today, other places. Um, This looks very ominous in terms of keeping corruption out of this trillions of dollars that taxpayers are paying for this. This Glenn Fine has just been ousted, apparently thought to be very independent, not afraid to ruffle feathers, and that there are people... Uh, 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 very conservative people who were talking about his being a member of the deep state, he and other inspector generals. This is a little ominous. Well, but no more ominous than than the signing statement the other day saying I'm not going to – the oversight provision in the law is null and void. Well, the point is, though, this fine guy was there. I mean, he was in place and known for his independence. And now the thinking is that the problem was he is a straight-up guy and that what the president wants is another sycophant. Go back. Go, well, sycophants are a great word. If you watch these White House briefings, what is the premium on? Let me call people up to the podium. are going to tell me how great I yeah, am. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he closes it by calling up Mike Pence. And Mike Pence's job is essentially to top the 20 people the president's already brought up to say how great he is. I hate to say that. I hate to say it, but it's true. Just watch it with your own eyes. That's how it plays out. Uh, when we should be getting important information about what is the government doing and what should we be doing to deal with this pandemic, a big piece of it is the sycophant society. Yeah. But back to your point about accountability. I, I can't say this enough. I've been doing this for more than 30 years. I've been in this town for 30 years. I, I, you know, I covered the Clinton White House and the Bush White House. I've been here for the Obama White House and now the Trump White House. Accountability is critical. It is critical. Any president in a democratic country should welcome it and contest it when you think somebody got their facts wrong. No inspector general is perfect, 
But you want somebody to tell you, this is a giant enterprise. Trillions of dollars are going out the door. I don't care how good you are, how honest you are, how wonderful you are. You're going to make mistakes. So you want somebody to say, that program's not working. That money didn't go that way. Hey, I've got an idea. We can streamline this. We can make this better. You desperately want people like that, especially when this is so important about getting the country up and running and so much taxpayers' dollar, dollars are going out the door here. A president should want the best team he can have, including a team that occasionally says, sir, you got this wrong, or you know what, I think there's some waste in this program and we can do it better. No one's going to beat up the president of the United States if somebody comes, one of his own people, and says, we've got to make this better. We might have misspent a little bit of money in the rush to help people. Right. That's going to happen. But look what happened yesterday. The Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General put out a report backing up all these local hospitals who are saying we are desperate for PPE, the personal protective equipment, the masks and the gowns. And the president, when someone at the White House asked him the question, he said, oh, you said inspector general? And he shut down the question. Last week, he fired the intelligence community inspector general who forwarded the whistleblower complaint to Congress. The inspector general who forwarded the complaint to Congress was doing his job. It's required by law. Correct. And the president fires these people. I, I don't care whether it's President Trump, President Obama, President Roosevelt, President Washington. Pick your president. Read the Constitution. This is a democracy. Accountability is critical. And it's, it's more than a little ominous. It is very ominous that this president – look at – watch these briefings. Watch these briefings. Reporters ask him questions about his own words, and he shuts them down. He, a reporter asked Anthony Fauci, do you agree with the president about hydroxychloroquine? He won't let Fauci answer yeah. the question. If we don't have sunlight and accountability, we are screwed. Forgive me, but yeah. we are screwed. Uh, and this president ha takes a tennis racket to it, or worse, whenever he can. Well, apparently he's taken a tennis racket to it once again today with the firing of this guy that was with the Pentagon. But anyway, John King, thank you John, very much. John, thanks for your time, as always. Take care, guys. See Stay you next week. Thank you. Yep, yep. John King joins us every week. He's CNN's uh, chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 8 and weekdays at noon. Lately, he's been double doing, been doing double duty on John King. We see him almost all day long. John King, thank you so much. Up next, something a little lighter. One month into our new normal, we're opening the lines, asking you what have you learned that you can live without in this pandemic time. The conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie. And it's been a month now that we've been living in a new reality, this largely isolated existence where our preoccupation seems to be finding hand sanitizer, paper towels, facial masks with only essential services open for business like gas stations, pharmacy, grocery stores. We're asking, have you learned what's essential to you and what's not? 877-301-8970. What have you learned that you can do without? Can you do without that $5 latte? Can you do without a massage, the night at the movies, do your eyebrows really need to be threaded? The number is 87. No, I'm serious. 877-301-8970. What have you learned? Uh, just give me one example of something you can – I've learned a lot of things I can't live without, like the hot bar at Whole Foods, but I have to. Are you kidding? I'm missing everything. I'm so missing everything. There's nothing you've learned you could live without during these three or four – three plus weeks? Uh, I, miss, I miss getting my hair cut. 
I miss, um, I, I'm not threading my eyebrows. Maybe I should thread my eyebrows. I really miss going sitting at bars. I think I'm afraid I'll never be able to do that again. Going in and having a drink and having dinner at the bar, you know, you can't get a seat. This is the exact I, I miss- opposite of the question I'm asking. What can you, have you learned you can do without nothing? You need everything you always did before? I do. I'm, I feel very <laughs> deprived, and I miss lots of things. I'm very concerned because the warm weather's coming up. You know, yeah. you've, you've noticed. I mean, you've rhapsodized about pedicures over the years, Jim. I've never rhapsodized. Yes, you did. Oh, you mean? Oh, yes, we have. Yes, We've you talked did. about them on women. You talked yes. about the correct I number of toes that you should show. That was actually Diane White. Diane in White the did a great column about the yes. sexiest number of toes to show in a pedicure. Toe cleavage can, is what it was cleavage. called. Right. And she concluded that the the big toe next to the second toe that was the sexiest thing. You don't want to show the whole. Uh, top of the foot, that's too much. A little soupçon of the toes. Anyway, you know, th- this summer we could have to do our own pedicures, which would be a disaster because I've tried. Or uh, we, uh, we we can't. I don't think they'll be reopened yet. Okay, so I'm going to give it one more try before mm-hmm. I tell you mine, then we'll take the calls. Uh, yoga. You obviously haven't been able to go to yoga. Well, Can actually, you do it without yoga? Yesterday I did Zoom yoga. No, you didn't. Is that really true? <laughs> and I was very careful to make sure nobody did you could really? see me. I, 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 just I did the audio, the computer. not the visual? No, I did the visual, but I tilted the computer so people couldn't see me. I didn't want people watching me because I hadn't cleaned the house. You know, I did you to... really or are you joking? I did. How I did. was it? Uh, uh, well, I, I like hot yoga. The room is very hot. Normally like it's like 95 degrees or something. I could not create the 95 degree temperatures in my house, but it was very nice. I enjoyed it. I will do it again. I, I love yoga. And it makes you feel much more relaxed. Okay, can I tell you what's at the top of my list that I can have learned I could do without? I knew before, but now I've really learned. And by the way, you're going to feel the same way. Meetings. Oh, that's meetings at work. Now they have. We are the only people in the newsroom, other than a couple of our colleagues who are actually coming into the building. Everybody else is working from home. Is there one meeting that you would have had a month ago that you have missed? That That's is a very not good a point. one. That is a very good point. I mean, I miss seeing my coworkers, yep. but you don't need to see them in a formal, structured yeah. meeting setting. That you know, is one of the great changes that we have lived through. Pamela just emailed, and What'd I think you say? and Pamela should get What's together, that? Jim. What is it? Pamela has discovered that she can do without most people. <laughs> well, by the way, a lot of people, even people who are not into, even people who don't take the position that I like having no human contact, mm-hmm. have taken the position that having human contact through FaceTime or through through uh, Zoom or some such thing or Skype is an acceptable alternative. Maybe not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. You don't have to travel to meet them. You don't have to travel back. It's quicker. It's more efficient and all that sort of stuff. And when you're sick of talking to the person, you can say your computer went on the fritz and that's the end of the well, conversation. Well, I think a lot of people are not missing – Going to see, like for example, their mother-in-law. They maybe aren't that. You know, they're not. They're not missing that kind of thing. You know, a Philip just emailed and said Jim was lucky that he had his hair shaved for charity when he did. That's totally true. By the way, he's worried that you, soon you're going to have dreadlocks. <laughs> well, my guy Alfred, who Alfred Hair Design in Harvard Square, is shut down, which is a nightmare for all involved. But luckily, I did have my head shaved for that thing uh, right before this all started. Total serendipity. So we're asking you very briefly. We don't have much time. What have you learned in the first three plus weeks of this? that you actually can do without without doing much suffering. Melissa in Rhode Island. Thank you for calling, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. I love your show. I listen Thanks. all the time. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Um, well, I, I my first thing was I called to say what people cannot live without What's is that? pizza. I own, I own a pizza shop. <laughs> and people, oh, poor you. People love their pizza. And, and I mean, we are so happy about that. And, and I mean, I'm driving home with pizza right now myself, so I can't live without pizza. Melissa, oh, wait, 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 wait. And, What's the name of your pizza yeah. place and where is it? 
It's in East Greenwich, Rhode Island, and it's called Pizza Heaven. Pizza Heaven. And are you doing takeout and delivery now? Or are you? I don't know what we the are. rules are. Yep. You are. How's that going? Takeout. We. I mean, it's we're learning every day, but we take we don't let it, our customers um, wait patiently outside, and we bring it out to the cart and just figuring it out day to day. Lots so, of luck to you. You know, but pizza, so far so good. Pizza Thanks. places, I think, are some of the places that are doing okay. The pizza place in my neighborhood is the same thing. There'll be like thirty people outside, six feet really? apart. Yeah, and you and you order your pizza, pay for it, you know, online or pay for it over the phone. So you don't with have your to touch card, on a human being. And then they come out and they yell your name. So, Melissa, have you learned, other than pizza, which you can't do without, for obvious reasons in your right. case, have you learned there's anything that used to be a part of your life that you can do without? Yes, and it's definitely the, I have three small children, it's the hustle of getting each one to their sports and their <laughs> piano and their art and all the classes, and my, my afternoons are free, and my nights are free, and it's been a nice simplifying experience, I have to say. I wish you could listen to yourself, your own voice, how calmed and, and almost thrilled you were when you said those words. <laughs> Melissa, good luck with your business. P- uh, Pizza Heaven, you said, and East yeah. Granite Road Island. Is that, what, is that where it was? Thank you. Yep. Good luck it. to you. Stay in business, and I hope you do well. Melissa, thanks so much. Jack says the boss, meaning his wife, and I definitely miss the bars. A lot of people miss the bars. Robert says he can uh, learned he can live without nonstop coverage of Tom Brady. Well, by the way, I, I have to say I find that relatively appealing, too. It's not an anti-Brady animus, but I don't miss that either. Bob in Plymouth, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hey, I got two things real quick for you here. Yeah. I don't miss the general public. <laughs> People don't social distance. They drive me crazy. I just went shopping this morning. But also, something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, I'm not missing the toilet paper. Jim, the corn cobs are working fine. <laughs> I found a couple extras out on the mouse pile for you if you need them. Marjorie, I'm saving a roll Marjorie. of for you, hon. Oh, Bob, thank you, you very much. You always said that, Marjorie. <laughs> thank you very Marjorie. much. Hey, Bob, are you the guy who's got the kid in Virginia, or is that a different uh, – is that you? Yeah, that's me. How's your kid that's doing? Me. She's doing okay. She's got maybe like four masks now that uh, that she's been sanitizing and reusing, and, but she's been just working like crazy. Well, we wish her luck. Bob, good to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for calling. 877-301-8970. You're looking intently at your computer. Do you I was just looking at different – I was just oh. look, checking the emails. Very there is nothing in your life pre-coronavirus that you have learned that you can do without not one thing? Not one thing? Well, I In guess, the spirit of Marie Kondo, you huh? You know what else I miss? I mean, I, mean, I miss this a lot of This is the things. opposite. I, I know. But what you, do you ask miss? me, I miss going to get a nice espresso. You do, yeah. Yes, I do. Coffee shops. I mean, coffee shops and cafes, that's the biggest loss uh, for uh, for me. You don't think people, I assume most people miss their favorite restaurants. And we're oh, not going to retreat into this one. takeout world, are here's we? Here's a good Why? one for the guys. What's that? Uh, this is from, uh, I think it's from Derek. He says he, he's learned he can live without shaving. Don't have to shave oh. every day. That's a good one. Uh, let's go to Paul in Worcester. Hey, Paul, good to talk to you. What's up? Hello. Um, how are you two? We're good. Um, so I've learned that I can live without a car. Oh, that's, that's a good inter- one. A Wait, but is that because you don't go anywhere? Well, I mean, I'm kind of a hermit anyway, if you will, but, <laughs> but now I, I can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, but you can only live without a car because you can't go anywhere. If you did have to go somewhere, you couldn't live without a car, right? 
No, this is this is what, and I've got another point too. But um, okay. this is this is what I'm saying is that you know we're learning to live a different way. This is good. We're going to come out of this all different. I, I, said, don't, I don't know how different we're different, but it's going to be different. Yeah, I, I agree in in a major well, way. But he's not done. He had a second point. What is the other point, Paul? Um, well, I've I've gotten into uh, computer games, mm. trying to you know kill some time, and and I just my computer just keeps kicking my butt at, at Fortnite and that kind of thing. But <laughs> And I, and, I, and I was really upset for a while. And then I remembered that while my computer might be able to beat me at Fortnite, it is no match for me at kickboxing. <laughs> That's a good one. Paul, thanks as always for your one. call. We appreciate it. Here's a good one. The people have been cleaning up. This is from, I think it's from Kava. It says, what I can do without all the bottles of vintage marinades, mustards, et cetera, that have clogged my refrigerator and shelves for literally decades. Yeah. It's a good opportunity That's a good one. to go through all the stuff that expired in 1912 and throw it out. I told you I made this fabulous bean casserole, bean casserole. thing from the New York Times yes. yesterday. I went and it was the only recipe in my whole life, I know this sounds hyperbolic, I've ever made where every single ingredient was in my house without having to purchase one. It was a great milestone for me. But when I went in the cabinet to find black beans, and luckily there, were, there weren't three cans. I needed two. There were, th- there, there were three. The third one you know what year it was best used by? 2010. <laughs> best used. And by well, the way, they last know, a long time. That was 10 years that ago. Bad. That's, that's pretty bad. Paula in Cambridge, we're talking about what you have learned you can live without. Hi, Paula. Hi, long time listener, first time caller. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I can do without any TV briefing with President Trump. <laughs> I've stopped watching them. <laughs> And I monitor the news. I monitor all news, and I can't take it. Can't yeah. Take it. So I can do without it. Well, that's a pretty I, decent thing. We started today's show discussing whether or not those presidential briefings, and I use the term loosely, were addiction viewing, Paula. And I think we uh, a lot of people agreed with you. Paula, thank you. But not us. You and I are just uh, locked in. Thanks for your first call. Jake, you literally have 60 seconds. Take yeah, it away. What, what are you doing without? All right. So I'm an essential uh, public safety employee in Boston, mm. and I drive in from Norwell, and it used to take me oh. uh, probably an hour. It takes oh. me about 22 minutes now, so I can do without the traffic on the Southeast That's Expressway. That's a great one. That, that is, a, is a great one, That may be one, the best Jake. one. That's so true. There's nobody on the road. You can drive to the Cape yeah. like in an hour. And I wonder what the aftermath, you know, when we come out of this, how much it'll be. It'll be what lasting effect on traffic it'll have, at least for a while. Well, Jake, let me just tell you quickly, we only have a couple of seconds. We were talking to our transportation guys the other day. People are going to be reluctant to get on the T, for example, because of how many people are jammed in, which I think means that our number one worst in the country, uh, uh, whatever you call it, uh, traffic jams, are going to get even more intense, at least in the short run. Let's hope we're uh, wrong. Jake, thank you. we got to go. Thank you very much for calling. That was a great one. Thanks. Okay, we are done. Thank you very much for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, man with the best bookshelf in America, is going to be joining us. We're going to ask him about that bookshelf. We've seen it on CNN. TV. Our national security expert, Juliet Kime, and MIT economist, John Gruber. I can't wait to talk to him about the economic impact here. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. What is on television, Jim Browdy? Well, we're going to start the show with Dr. Don Berwick, who I think you know, uh, was the former head of Medicare and Medicaid uh, for Barack Obama. We're going to talk about the federal response to the COVID-19 
uh, a pandemic, uh, what could be done differently, what should be done differently. We're also going to talk about medical and healthcare discrepancies, disparities that we touched on this morning. Also, a group of supermarket employees held a rally in front of a Boston Whole Foods market today saying they were not being well protected. A Shaw's employees who was part of that, who's frustrated by the lack of protection, is going to join me. And then Matt Light, I think he's won three Super Bowls with the Patriots. He is uh, leading this Lift Your Spirits Challenge to raise money for out-of-work bar and restaurant employees. We're going to talk about that. And then we end the show like we have every night during this pandemic with something that's become pretty popular with uh, what you've sent in with sentiments and inspiration and examples of connection between humans that most of us hadn't seen before. So that'll be tonight as well. You know what Helen said she she can live without? And this is a great one, too. That morning hustle, get out the door on time. No, that's a big one. That's a great one. That's a great one. Thank you very much. Sorry I didn't get to read all the rest of them. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please tune again tomorrow. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Have a great afternoon and keep, keep safe. Bye.